0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals.
1: Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And the police is thinking, you know... I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about
2: you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want
1: you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people that have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive. We're into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was
2: the grotto leader? Mm-hmm. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Are these people in mm-hmm. very high mm-hmm. yeah. position? Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad episode 41. I'm your co-host Dimitri.
0: I'm Khaled.
2: And Today, we're going to tackle a book that I I think rightfully deserves to be up on the Pantheon bookshelf for Sublima Jihad in general.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, very much one that vibes uh, uh, in a certain, maybe oblique way with uh, the previous, uh, or, or some of the previous books, uh, such as S.K. Bain's books. There's definitely a Bainley vibe to this book. I hadn't read it before, so I didn't really mm-hmm. expect it, but uh, there definitely is a bit of a, a Bainley vibe here. Lots of, uh, a surprising number of mentions of, like, Crowley and a lot of, like, uh, astrological speculations involving, like, dates of things happening. Uh, mm-hmm. Just yeah. um,
2: noting who was born on the winter solstice or the autumnal yes. equinox or on Aleister Crowley's birthday, which uh, a number of the events in this book do happen on October 12th. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it it but it is a very interesting and impressive work. It's something that I discovered maybe about five years ago. Um, and this, of course, is Dave McGowan's, uh, the late great Dave McGowan's, weird scenes inside the canyon, Laurel Canyon, covert ops, and the dark heart of the hippie dream, which I mm-hmm. think he published. Uh, I want to say maybe around in like twenty. 14 actually is when this came out. So I probably heard first heard about this book in 2015. And I think Dave McGowan passed away around that time. He, uh, he got cancer and then, um, and not unlike, uh, may Brussels in the 1980s, uh, came down with a very fast acting form of cancer. And, uh, he was kind of taken away from us, uh, all all too soon, I think, because he, he does have this he's unique in a couple of different ways. I mean, he's delved, he's somebody who's delved into a lot of the topics that we've covered. Uh, like for, well, obviously that, I mean, in our grateful dead episode, um, that ties into this heavily, but also the idea of like the Monarch program, uh, MK ultra, he, his previous book program to kill, um, mm-hmm. had a lot about kind of, you know, uh, a lot of that hypothesis that I think we touched on before the idea that somehow um, the proliferation of serial killers in the 1970s and eighties was uh, somehow connected to the sort of military intelligence complex and maybe certain things that were going on during the Phoenix program, which of course uh, Michael Aquino was involved in. And, 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 but also, I mean, McGowan, I think McGowan is kind of unique because he is a kind of quote-unquote conspiracy theorist or conspiracy writer who does write from a pretty left-wing, not in, not with too fine of a point on it, but definitely from a kind of left-wing anti-war uh, perspective. And actually somebody, as I was reading through this, uh, somebody who I think he does have a certain amount in common with is Mark Lombardi even though their approaches to this ki- these mm-hmm. kind of topics were different and kind of, uh, you know, they basically, you know, Mark, Mark Lombardi had trouble putting his kind of uh, investigations yeah. into book form. And I feel it's like Dave McGowan took this yeah. other approach, uh, which, which almost, it feels kind of like you're riding through an, a bunch of interlocks, like when you're reading this, except it's just sort of written out in prose. But yeah. it has the same well, kind of guess- feeling.
0: I think there's two aspects what you're saying. On one hand, like it's an interesting comparison because you know, Mark Lombardi was an artist, but his work didn't really uh, directly address what art as like a you know the art world. Uh, you know, a lot of it had to do with sort of banking networks and that type of thing. Whereas mm-hmm. this book is you know very much about like the interlocks between like the world of art and the production of you know, cultural production, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yep. uh, and, uh, you know, intelligence and, uh, you know, uh, those types of, uh, strange, uh, links. Um, uh, and yeah, so it's, uh, interesting counterparts in a way. And, uh, yeah. And I think yes. that on, yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, yeah. Like, uh, it, they both do share that kind of, uh, style that, yeah, it's interesting. It's not really like, uh, it's one that I guess maybe is excluded from uh, the sort of uh, criteria of like rigorous like journalism or uh, academic work, I guess uh, that Mm -hmm. maybe is, you know, associated with, yes, like uh, the the sort of genre of like conspiracy writing uh, Mm -hmm. It's hard to pick. I guess has a sort of associational or stream of consciousness type uh, style or layout that has like sort of a frenetic, uh, structure to it um, mm-hmm. I mean it's interesting I think that there's like you know value in the perspective that's afforded by uh, that stuff that like anybody can, can recognize and that like you know stepping into these different you know uh, having those sort of different criteria and those different uh, you know standards of, of uh, creating a connection between things is valuable mm-hmm. and like a lot of the time we sort of uh, you know lose that um, when you know we use these more uh, more orthodox methodologies I guess uh you know, and yeah, I think that's something that art mm-hmm. allows and also something that maybe uh, the conspiratorial frame allows. That's like the sort of uh, critical paranoia that, uh, you know, some people have talked about, like Dolly maybe uh, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I
2: mean, that's funny. a that that's a term we've uh, we've sort of embraced. Uh, yeah. Little, our little blurb is yeah. uh, the critical paranoid perspective, which I think, uh, you know, and like Dave McGowan, I think he's like aware of that he sounds paranoid and Mm. you know he he does say in the beginning that basically he caught a lot of flack um you know from people who maybe enjoyed other parts of his work because he acknowledges that the sort of uh subjects of his research in this book uh really hits on like a raw nerve with a lot of people because it's talking about our beloved cultural or counter-cultural icons of mm-hmm. the 1960s and the 1970s. And there's so much... It, it's it, it's an interesting thing that, as he goes into this, there's so much about that this era that is not particularly well-known, uh, in even in, like, the mainstream rock lore. Um, like, people don't really know that much about it, but everyone feels like they know what went down, because there is a kind of broad narrative that... Uh, of how the sixties counterculture sort of came into being. And I think, uh, I think with his approach in this, uh, he, you know, I'm trying to find the thing here where he, uh, where he states that people were, uh, the criticisms that he got, um, okay. Yeah. He says, when early installments of this story were posted online, I received a fair amount of negative feedback. Among other things, I was accused of inferring, quote, guilt by association and of engaging in, quote, character assassination. One rather strident respondent complained that it was unfair to take a few isolated facts about an individual and use them to paint a sinister picture. To some extent, these are valid complaints. And yes, it is fairly easy to gather together a few different isolated facts and use them to paint a much different portrait of these artists and pen an impassioned defense of any of them. Uh... Jim Morrison and Frank Zappa seem to have the most rabid fans by the way in case anyone was wondering. <laughs> but what I ask, yeah, but but what I ask is that you try to stand back and take in the big picture and then ask yourself the following question. Exactly how many coincidences does it take to make a conspiracy? And yes, by the way, I'm very much aware of the fact that Jim Morrison was fond of telling interviewers that his parents were dead and that according to legend, he did so because they were in essence dead to him. But as one photograph (laughs) reveals, Jim's dad wasn't dead to him just months before his emergence as a rock star. The photo, reproduced at the front of this book, shows the two Morrisons on the bridge of the USS Bonhomme Richard in January 1964. It seems rather obvious to me that telling people your parents are dead could be a very effective way of avoiding talking about who your father really is. It was such an effective strategy, in fact, that it took over four decades for the truth to finally come out. And so, uh, that, that is what opens the book is this, like this photograph. And, um, I don't know, like, I mean, it is a picture of a young, I'm looking at it right now. It's a picture of a young, very clean cut, uh, not rock and roll sex God looking, uh, Jim Morrison, who's probably, I don't know, at the time, maybe like 18 or 19. Um, and, uh, sitting next to him. Looking out, like, the port window, uh, maybe in the captain's quarters, is uh, his father, uh, U.S. Navy Admiral George Stephen Morrison. Um, And, like, see, that's a thing right off the bat. I've told this to people so many times over the last five years. Like, did you know that... Jim Morrison's dad was a Navy admiral who is in command of the ships at the Gulf of Tonkin incident. <laughs> and people were like, wait, what? <laughs> like, uh, <yeah>. uh, no, <laughs> like, you know, like you think that would be, even if you're going to have a, a traditional narrative, like th- if he was truly kind of a, this rebel that he presented himself to be like that, how could that not just like fuel the, the rebel persona? The fact that his dad is like, you know, a, a, you know uh he's like works in the war machine his dad is like literally the man who played an instrumental role in starting the whole vietnam war the jim morrison's generation and supposedly his music was rebelling against so like you know i mean it's like you can't have it both ways if he said he's dead they dead and he doesn't have want to have anything to do with him um why not like denounce them then, or something? Or did he think that you know what I mean? It's just a little mm-hmm. bit. It's a little bit uh, funny, and as we we'll, as we're about to see in this book, uh, Dave McGowan just hits you like again and again and again with bizarro coincidences. And I think what he says there is right. Like, how many coincidence, how many coincidences does it take to start basically looking more like a conspiracy? than just a weird, um, you know... And, and maybe some of these things, I will say, are genuinely coincidences, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's that's probably not only possible, but likely. But um, as we get into this, you know, just like with The Grateful Dead, it's like all these people just ended up at the exact right place at the exact right time. John Perry Barlow's hanging out with Tim Leary, tries to blow up, a, tries to be a suicide sure. bomber. Uh, Al, you know, Augustus Owsley-Stansley checks himself into, like, a notorious, like... Uh, mental hospital, um, and uh, you know, etc and the, and all these people have like extreme, like blue blood political, military, economic connections. Uh, yeah, how much of that can of you?
0: Owsley in this book is great, by the way. I mean, we touched on uh-huh. like his susness in the Grateful Dead episode, but the section about him is is very good uh yeah there's just something about maybe it's like the name owsley itself like uh you know owl something about yeah yeah, owsley no um you know that just like uh yeah that's the the picture of like you know uh, a coincidence or a meaningless association but something about honestly just uh, i don't like it it it, uh, it creeps me out it runs me the wrong way yeah uh, yeah uh, uh no yeah and like
2: and something even even his that, nickname like bear is like yeah. a little bit creepy like he's a little mm. bear. He's a cuddly little bear I mean, but actually a I've bear always is dangerous been Put off
0: by those bears i think that like yeah. seeing those bears like throughout <laughs> my life like before even knowing the significance of them i've just always been disturbed and like just never cared much for those bears they always like like you know they always made me uncomfortable a bit uh so maybe that's uh that's part of it as well but uh yes he i was like a, a magical uh lsd peddler uh uh-huh.
2: as well. yeah, but, yeah just uh, um, taught himself how to do it in like two weeks at the berkeley library and then um you know just went for it and yes um yeah and and actually Like maybe before we dive in, this actually isn't uh, McGowan probably didn't have an opportunity to like discover this video. But we had brought up, I think, in part two of uh, Warlocks of Palo Alto, um, episode 34, the like the, the videotaped reunion party in, I think, 1979 that Tim Leary hosted in L.A. that had, like, Al Hubbard and a lot of these old... And they're like, oh, like, Dr. John Lilly's coming by later. You know, basically the <laughs> one where they were, they were talking about, like, how did... They were reminiscing about how did this whole crazy LSD thing get started. And I think I'd read the quote, but I want to read it again because I knew we would come back to this. Like, something kind of interesting and cryptic that Timothy Leary said, um, I think at minute 34 in this uh, reunion... And Yeah, I have it right here. Leary said, um, as you go around the country, I'm sure you've all experienced, you talk to middle-aged, fairly respectable people in Tucson, Arizona, and they say, this is where it really happened, or in San Francisco or the Lower East Side. And no one has ever really talked about what was going on in Los Angeles during those years. I think much more was done down here. There was a much wider range. There were more doctors involved. There were more scientists involved. It was part of the coolness of the Los Angeles cell, if you want to call it. Our undercover agents in Los Angeles were very cool, and yet they did more in a very laid-back way. And it's never been as public as some of the other, you know, the, the buses running around the country. Um, mm. of course that that's referring to the Mary pranksters yeah. and mm. uh and that whole uh, yeah, that whole gang up at Stanford and Ken Kesey, but you know, that always jumped out at me like uh, our undercover agents in Los Angeles were very cool, and yet they did more in a very laid back way, and it's never been as public as some of the other stuff. So, you know, I think then when you go and read Weird Seeds inside the Canyon, you see that. I don't think he's uh, talking out of his ass there because it sounds like something was going on down in Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles, starting probably around 1965, around the exact same time that the acid tests were happening up uh, in and around Stanford and San Francisco. You had... um, And people also... This is a thing that uh, McGowan... Like, you know, gets out of the way rather quickly is that's another really foundational, like almost Mandela effect, like misremembering that a lot of people have about the 60s is that psychedelic rock and like uh, kind of this countercultural folk rock stuff, like all came out of San Francisco. I mean, as we've seen with Grateful Dead, it's technically, it technically came out of Palo Alto. But putting that aside, the idea that it was like Jefferson Airplane, Janice Joplin, the Grateful Dead, people like that that basically popularized, um, the, that kicked off this like psychedelic music kind of revolution in the late sixties. But, um, as is like, I mean, it's it, I mean, even among like historians, like it's incontrovertible that no, it actually all started with a very tight knit group of bands in Laurel Canyon, which for anybody who doesn't know is a kind of secluded Community in the Hollywood Hills, in one of the one of the many canyons that cuts through um, the. Uh Basically into the San Fernando Valley, so it's basically the mouth of Laurel Canyon. I like that uh, McGowan always calls it the mouth, like it's some kind of gaping <laughs> like yeah. hole into this like hellscape. But uh, but it's basically right. Uh, it, it spills out right onto Sunset Boulevard and like West Hollywood, and then right down the street a little bit is the famed Sunset Strip, where you had like the Whiskey a Go Go, and then later the Roxy, the Viper Room. Uh, that you you know, is still there, like, to the the Rainbow Room, et cetera, that was where all of these 60s bands, like, kind of debuted and had their, you know, their big blow-up. Um, mm-hmm. And so everybody was basically, um, all the bands and the, the scene, if you will, was all based in this, like, very secluded um, kind of, you know like if you ever go up there it's like i mean that's what kind of why famous people live up in the hills like the roads are really narrow um i mean even today you don't get like cell phone reception up at the top of Laurel canyon like people have extenders in their homes but like if you uh i remember that when i uh When I drove Lyft years ago, whenever I would drop somebody off in Laurel Canyon, it would be, like, frustrating and spooky that your cell phone would die out once you got to, you know, a certain point. And uh, so it's, like, very isolated. And it was even more so in the uh, mid-20th century. And it became just apropos of kind of nothing. It just became the place all these people flocked to, starting in 1965 and 66. So you get names like Frank Zappa the birds, uh, Arthur Lee, the band love. Um, and then pretty soon, uh, Neil Young, Stephen Stills, you know, uh, David Crosby, who was in the birds. Um, and they basically, you know, and John Phillips and the mamas and the papas, like all these people descend upon Laurel Canyon in like a one to two year, uh, span and they all get record contracts and they all start pumping out this new type of electric, folk music um and you know quickly after that uh like bob dylan uh you know uh plugs in at the uh, monterey folk festival and i think in uh, i think that might have been in either late 65 or 66 um kind of like right after the birds had their first debut single which was a cover of dylan's mr tambourine man and then of course like that this electric revolution in music, like, just exploded. And then shortly thereafter, you had these bands in San Francisco that also kind of jumped in on it. And there was a lot of interaction, obviously, between the San Francisco scene and the Laurel Canyon scene. But it really did all start here in uh, Los Angeles, which did not, as McGowan notes, like, have a huge music industry per se uh, prior to kind of the mid 60s, and it certainly wasn't a hub of, like, folk music or rock and roll or anything like that. Like, back then, it was, like, Nashville, Memphis, Detroit, and New York were kind of, like, the biggest places, and, uh, you know, like, Greenwich Village, and, and a little bit also the Cambridge scene of the early 60s, which McGowan notes has, like, some of the exact same personalities uh, involved in running it, um, and... <laughs> So, you know, that that's the the jumping off point. Right. And um, but as we see, you know, th- and this music is coded to this day as being very countercultural, very, you know, against the Vietnam War, against the, the uptight stuffy values of the 50s. And, you know, um, uh, as you see, in the, as as McGowan goes through all these people, you realize that th- that is really more of like that's like a phantom it's not really there even though the vibe is there if that makes sense right Mm -hmm. like if you listen to a lot of this music it sounds like it represents that era of now people have long hair and they're wearing bright psychedelic colors and they just Mm -hmm. want to be groovy and they don't want to like live in your world man and like you know all that kind of stuff but like when you look at the personalities of a lot of these people, like uh I think we talked about before recording, like uh Frank Zappa, Steven Stills, David Crosby, these guys were all kinda like they were much closer to like John Millius than they were to like any kind of left wing yeah. artist. Frank
0: Zappa is a great example. I feel like he is really the archetypal example of that, especially as he comes through in this book, uh, as just like a mm-hmm. complete like fascist maniac uh, just frothing, open, like, ideologically dedicated fascist. um, and, uh, yeah, like, not really what, uh, people think of, uh, maybe when they think of Frank Zappa. I feel like the Beach Boys maybe as well is another good example of what you're talking about, like, in terms of the dissonance between, like, the kind of appearance of the associations and, like, the you know, uh, the music that, uh, is, is, being performed or, uh, maybe what, what people think about, I feel like, you know, there's, I mean, there's definitely two aspects mm-hmm. of the Beach Boys and they definitely play a big role in this book. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's two, the, the famously, like, there's two kind of sides to them Or one, they're like very in yes. the middle, like surf rock kind of thing. And then they have this sort of like bizarre psychedelic side, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, yeah. You know, obviously and a very darker <clears throat> dimension to that then. Uh, you know, maybe even people realize, but, uh, you know, the dichotomy,
2: yeah. I think, comes through. And, and people, and yeah, for sure, like, people are, uh, yeah, because even they were kind of pre-political and pre, I don't know, whatever this, uh, whatever this cultural revolution potentially op, uh, you know, this cultural revolution op was, they were around before it. They're actually one of the only bands that predated like, 1965 that were kind of a big part of this scene, Like most of the people were just spun, just dropped out of nowhere, basically, and, you know, started doing it. But then the Beach Boys were almost like they were the ones who had made it and been big. But then they did have this like probably around 65, 66, when a lot of them started getting into LSD and like partying a lot. And they obviously they had a lot of money to kind of throw around. And they get really sucked into this story. And in a way, it's almost like the Beach Boys are one of these bands where I feel like the 60s cultural revolution, it like happened to them like they were subjected to basically this like rapid transformation, which I guess you could say like the Beatles and a lot of other people, you know, they all grew their hair out and started doing acid you know, all around the same time, basically. But in the Beach Boys, there's so many dark currents from like Brian Wilson's kind of mental illness and then getting like uh, sort of like psychologically enslaved by Eugene Landy, the manipulative <laughs> therapist who like stole uh, all his money. And then Dennis Wilson's fucking like his extensive friendship with charles manson and his interactions with the manson family and and like their their psychotic father like who's extremely abusive like there's a lot of really and then mike love who is obsessed with transcendental meditation and i guess has like his brother is like a former NBA player who is, like, Brian's bodyguard, but it almost sounds like a kind of, like, Brian Wilson abuse. Like, like Mike Love has his goons, like, control Brian Wilson. And I don't know. It's just, like... And, you know, they're cousins on top of that. So, it's... Uh, yeah, and they were all... And they, they all loved dating, like, teenage girls, and that... <laughs> Some of this stuff really McGowan's right. Some of this stuff stings because like I went through a big Beach Boys phase, I think, like in college, uh, maybe a little bit kind of like um, like my more recent Eagles phase. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to pop they're going to pop up in this uh, to some extent. Um, But, you know, I I do think the Beach Boys are kind of like I mm, I don't know if, you know, I could say. Maybe the Beatles put out... I love saying X is better than the Beatles. I I just love Mm -hmm. it. Like, it's one of my favorite trolls. But, like, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the Beatles probably put out more consistently kind of, like, good records and stuff than, like, the Beach Boys. But I do think the Beach Boys, I like them more. And they're, like, a more interesting band. And Yeah, I I do think the Beach
0: Boys are better than the Beatles. I mean, there's, like, lots of, like, you know, shitty Beach Boys songs. Like, I mean, like, Surfing USA, like, I take it or leave it, like, I don't care, like... I think Pet Sounds yeah. is good, you know? Oh, like, yeah, yeah, Pet Sounds and uh, yeah. even a lot of the Smile wow.
2: stuff that eventually yeah. came out is, like, quite good. Mm-hmm. And and some of their, even some of their weird deep cuts, like, including their, uh, the the Charles Manson song they did, Never, Never Learn yeah. Not to Love, is, like, kind of a, it's good. I mean, like, it's. it it gives it that beach boys treatment. You could see how if something had gone a different way, like Charles Manson would have just been another gun toting freak who became a celebrity in the late Mm sixties. Like, like that, that's the other thing is like the, uh, the whole narrative around Manson also just starts to get eaten out from below as you start reading this book. And even if you've never read chaos or anything like that, you realize that like I, my hatred for like Quentin Tarantino, just like the levels just kept increasing (laughs) throughout watching this. Cause we talked Uh, about it in the previous app, like how, uh, How annoying his like uh, fantastical like reimagination of the Manson murders was and how in a way it's like I don't know. And somehow it's even worse than like not portraying the reality because he was so uninterested in all of these other aspects. Like there's no Dennis Wilson in that movie, there's no yeah. Terry Melcher. There's none of this stuff. It's like what you didn't even portray remotely. What like the Laurel Canyon scene yeah. was like it's back. Then. It was just really like, look, crazy. Steve McQueen. Like, oh, Mama Cass. Like, you know, it was yeah, like it's so really fucking dumb.
0: Amazing that like at this point in time, like where there's really so much there in terms of the Manson connection. Like, what was that quote that? in this book, like Brian Wilson says about about Charles Manson, I think it was Brian Wilson, I, it might have been Dennis Wilson, but it was one of one of the Wilson brothers um, who said, like, you know, my friend Charlie, you know, the wizard... Oh, wow, it's right here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, it is Dennis, yeah. Dennis told me, sometimes the wizard frightens me. Charlie Manson, who is another friend of mine, says he is God and the devil. He sings, plays, and writes poetry. Um... Like, uh, he said, uh, Charlie Manson, who is a friend of mine. Um, yeah, like, yeah, 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 like, no
2: first. Sure. I mean, uh, you know. Neil Young said afterwards that he, he said something like he said he was like a living poet and he was like, really, I think he went over to Dennis Wilson's and like hung out with Charles Manson and thought he was really talented yeah. and tried to There's get Terry Melcher. About-
0: there's something about this mentality that some people have where they're just, like, so easily, like, persuaded, like, this, the uh, the poetic or, like, celestial uh, inspiration of, like, these fucking people like Charles Manson. It's very bizarre. But, yeah, he, like, auditioned for Neil Young, too. That, like, so yeah. crazy. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And
2: Terry Melcher, and as it says in the Chaos book, like, Terry Melcher went back to Spawn Ranch, like, after the murders and was, like, on LSD, like, on his knees, like, begging charles manson for forgiveness uh and like that got yeah. totally left out of the narrative there's just so much and of course like the the thing that i feel like it, it it must be so uh it must be so still tight like i would love to to go on my own research dig to like find out more about it but the big kind of elephant in the room with laurel canyon is that from world war ii to at least the early 1970s. It was the home of Lookout Mountain Laboratory or uh, aka Lookout Mountain Air Force Base, um, which was perched atop uh, Laurel Canyon, I think on Wonderland Avenue. And it was a top secret uh, air like military installation that had a, a- extremely like complex like film, production facility and like film studio in fact I think it was the largest like indoor film studio in the world for a time in the 50s and 60s um and basically uh it was active like all through this entire period and I think from the little that we know about it um it basically they they did a lot of top secret sort of anything to do with like filming or processing of film. Like for example, they process the film results from uh nuclear weapons tests like in, you know, the Pacific Ocean or in Nevada. Um or uh maybe photography of uh experimental planes, things like that. Um also uh I remember I wanna say um maybe it was uh maybe it was crypto cuttlefish years ago who made some kind of comparison with I guess what they were probably doing during Vietnam was attaching cameras to like bomber and fighter jets that were like doing napalm raids in North Vietnam and uh, doing a lot of photography of like the kinetic action of like, uh, you know, blowing shit up. And uh, I think they drew a parallel to like the kind of like shoving his crotch in your face like. Like style of Jim Morrison and basically like the kind of like sensory assault and that there was some kind of maybe connection I don't know like McGowan doesn't go too deep into because I guess he just doesn't know because it's all still classified what actually was being done there but there were also internal kind of government educational films and things like that and there were a number of actors including I believe like Gene Kelly, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Marilyn Monroe who all went and, like, shot things at Lookout Mountain in, like, the 1950s, and we still have no idea what they were doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's... uh, Oh, yeah, maybe not the biggest... um, uh, film studio ever I see here. But uh, but yeah, by 1947, the facility had a fully operational movie studio that has been claimed to be the world's only completely self-contained movie studio. So everything from A to Z, you know, from pre- to post-production and whatever could be done there. It was 100,000 square feet, um, included sound stages, screening rooms, film processing labs, editing facilities, an animation department, and 17 climate-controlled film vaults. It also had a helicopter pad and a bomb shelter. Over its lifetime, the studio produced some 19,000 classified motion pictures, more than all the Hollywood studios combined. Um, of course, officially the facility was run by the U.S. Air Force and did nothing more nefarious than process AEC footage of atomic and nuclear bomb tests. The studio, however, was clearly equipped to do far more than just process film. There are indications that Lookout Mountain Laboratory had an advanced research and development department that was on the cutting edge of new film technologies. Such technological advances as 3D effects were apparently first developed at the Laurel Canyon site, and Hollywood luminaries like John Ford, Jimmy Stewart, Howard Hawks, Ronald Reagan, Bing Crosby, Walt Disney, Hedda Hopper, and Marilyn Monroe were given clearance to work at the facility on undisclosed projects. There's no indication that any of them ever spoke of their work at the clandestine studio. And the facility retained as many as 250 producers, directors, technicians, editors, animators, etc., both civilian and military, all with top security clearances, all reporting to work in a secluded corner of Laurel Canyon. Accounts vary as to when the facility ceased operations. Some claim it was in 1969, while others say the facility remained in operation longer. But in any event, by all accounts, the secret bunker had been up and running for more than 20 years before Laurel Canyon's rebellious teen years, and it remained operational for the most turbulent of those years. The existence of the facility remained unknown to the general public until the early 90s, though it had long been rumored that the CIA operated a secret movie studio somewhere in or near Hollywood. Filmmaker Peter Coran was the first to learn of its existence through classified documents he obtained while researching his 1995 documentary, Trinity and Beyond. And yet even today, nearly 20 years after its limited public disclosure, one would have trouble finding a single mention of the secret military intelligence facility anywhere in conspiracy literature. So, you know, I mean, that... the. Like what's going on there? <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like,
0: is that where they wh- shot the uh, Bigfoot walking away from the camera footage? Um, like, uh, you know, uh it yeah. could have been.
2: You know, there's a lot of yeah. uh, there's a lot of neglected foliage. You know, it's, it's very yeah,
0: mm. um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Very <coughs> uh, peculiar. It reminds me a little bit of. I mean, Jack Parsons comes up in this book, but it reminds yeah. me a little bit of Marjorie Cameron's like uh, work for the Navy, like in photography. Absolutely. uh, The Hollywood Navy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The Hollywood Navy. And uh, and of course, yeah, there are connections he draws out here. I believe he says that uh, Dennis Hopper was a member of the Agape Lodge of the Mm O.T.O. that, of course, Uh, was set up by Aleister Crowley and that Jack Parsons and I think L. Ron Hubbard were both members of.
0: Yeah, uh, the Agape Lodge,
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah, Uh, and then, of course, like, Augustus Owsley Stanley, when he moved to L.A. in uh, the early 60s, I think in 1963, he worked for a while at JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which was co-founded by Parsons and had a bunch of Nazis working for it um, uh, very notoriously. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, after serving in the Air Force as an electronic warfare specialist, uh, <laughs> yeah, it
0: really does, you know, it really makes, it really does paint, like, a more, you know, because, for instance, just to uh, continue uh, along the, the line of the, the comparison to S.K. Bane, which, you know, maybe isn't the most uh, salient or, or fully appropriate, but uh, I it is, like, you know, when the, all these sort of uh, uh, circumstantial things, like, constellate together, you really get, like, uh, for instance, you know, the whole argument of S.K. Bane is that, uh, there's this group of elites who have the satanic religion that they all practice, like, and that, mm-hmm. you know, the larger public isn't really privy to, but it's a very intricate, and uh, in his analysis, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, to truly understand what happened in 9-11, it's all bound up in the symbology of this religion. Um, but you can almost, like... Uh, he, he doesn't even really argue for that so much as just, like, stated as fact, uh, and maybe the, uh, an, the reading of 9-11, like, is meant to speak for itself, but in this, mm-hmm. you really do get this bizarre sense of, like, this sort of secret, uh, religious, uh, gr- you know, uh, fraternity or something that all these people belong to, like, these same themes that they're all fascinated with for some reason, like, the, the, mm-hmm. like, the, the compelling, like, fascination with, I mean... The occult, like, magic, like, you know, wizards, like, these things are very fascinating, but it's just interesting how all these people are so drawn powerfully into the world, like, uh, you know, the serious exploration of the occult and, like, you know, demons and Satanism and exploring these themes, like, in their art, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in such a, uh, you know, uh, institutional way. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, very strange. No, it's very um, bizarre.
2: And, and you know, there were real, um, I think, whereas it might be harder. SK Bay might have a harder time because he's dealing with, Kind of high political figures, but uh, you know, so he's not able to say, "Oh, well, like this person is a member of the OTO." But you know, be, with these kind of Hollywood freaks and these uh, these famous people and everything in Laurel Canyon, they're they're kind of it's part of their shtick a little bit to be like into this occulty yeah. kind of magic, woo woo stuff. And so they're all kind of much more open about it. So you actually know a little more that some of them were like flirting around with Satanism, and there's multiple references to that uh, throughout this book with almost everybody involved on some level um they yeah. you know I've, i think uh, like there were,
0: was like the picture that's portrayed at least in this book is that like in this scene it was almost like ubiquitous like i think that even like three dog night was practicing like satanism you know like uh yes, maybe three yeah, dog night uh, yeah you yeah, know i think uh, maybe, uh that like, somebody but, involved
2: know. in three dog night was and uh there, There's a quote here, Chris Hillman, who's in The Birds, um, it, uh, in one of many instances that McGowan notes, uh, his house burned to the ground on what, uh, what was described as, quote, a, uh, a hot witchy day in the 60s. According to Hillman, quote, Crosby was at my house an hour before the blaze. I can't connect it yet where the Satan factor came into play with David, but I'm working on it. It just like, uh, OK, like you, the, the Satan factor with David Crosby. Like what? Um,
0: what does yeah, that I mean, mean? This is, a, this is a, like a, a quote from Sammy Davis Jr. that he uses as like the epigraph for Chapter Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone there had at one time or another been into Satanism or like myself had dabbled around the edges for sexual kicks, uh, referring to the victims at uh, CeeLo Drive. Um, uh uh-huh. Yeah, but, yeah. The yeah. Rat Pack was uh, not
2: on. Uncon- I think like Peter Lawford was kind of like in this mix as well uh, at various times. Um, and, uh, yeah.
0: um, yeah. yeah. And, and of uh, course,
2: yeah, like Sammy Davis Jr. was in, uh, the church of Satan. There's that famous picture of him, Anton LaVey and Michael Aquino, uh, you know, right, from back yes. in the, maybe the early seventies. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and that is true. Like they're basically all of the victims, uh, were kind of involved in some kind of some trippy shit. Um, in in fact I remember from the chaos book that uh O'Neill wrote that one of the earliest kind of uh, slogans being banned like one of the original kind of rumors after the Tate murders um, was that these people had been involved in something. And the the quote, I think maybe published in a newspaper was live freaky, die freaky. So people were saying like, yeah, well, these people were getting into some dark shit. What do they expect would happen? You know? Um, which I think in a way is like kind of true. It's just the mad, it's a question of how freaky, uh, really was it? And I think, uh, McGowan makes a pretty good case that like, it was, yeah. And just, you know, he, he lists out all the deaths of people and I mean some of them a lot of car crashes, overdoses etc. You know uh, not to say every single person who died was like bumped off but there are a lot of weird deaths uh, from and it's like a high yeah. casualty rate um, given that all of these people mostly were military age young men uh, that down to a T <laughs> avoided the draft at the height of the Vietnam War when yeah. they were supposedly making millions of dollars making songs against the vietnam war Do, you know i think that's a great point that mcgowan makes is it, if you want to kind of point out a, a you know uh, maybe some evidence for susness it's like how easy would it have been for the u.s government to just get these people off the airwaves and send them to nam mm-hmm. like if it really wanted to i mean yes uh, like if they're if they were actually dangerous like why wouldn't you know a re- and maybe that's a kind of thing that that's a PSYOP in and of itself that like, look how free America is. You can even make money being an anti-war, like folk mm-hmm. rock guy. Yes. And the government might like complain about you, but it won't touch a, 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 the teensiest hair on your head uh, or send you to Vietnam. Like it's doing to like millions of other young men. And, you know, so in a way, like if you accept the premise of that, it kind of implies that like the US government is less, uh, you know, authoritarian or evil or whatever than it actually is. When in fact, they could have just like, these guys were maybe had a role to play. And so we're going to leave them alone. But of course, you know, if they set that a line and, you know, went in a direction maybe that the government really didn't like, I'm sure something could have Happened to them and also a lot Of them ended up dead at like 27 mm-hmm. So yes. you know maybe some of them Were knocked off uh, eventually After you know their usefulness Was uh, was done um, Or you know maybe as, as even Some people I think suspect Jim Morrison uh, faked their own death and like Lived uh, you know under a, Like kind of witness protection um, Identity uh, I don't know about that Per se but uh, But it, Just there's a lot of weirdness.
1: Mr. America, walk on by your schools that do not teach. Mr. America, walk on by the minds that won't be reached. Mr. America, try to hide the emptiness that's you inside. But once you find that the way you lie, And all the corny tricks you tried will not forestall the rising tide of home.
2: So I don't know. Should we? Do we want to start with uh, maybe a couple? Do we want to maybe like get into maybe Frank Zappa as like a start? Because he yeah, we can discuss. He more than anybody. uh, Maybe Frank Zappa and also Vito Palekas, who I think we had mentioned maybe back in the Kenneth Anger episode or may uh, I think maybe I had some notes on him for the grateful dead episode, but like Frank Zappa and Vito Pelikas are really, I think McGowan makes a pretty good case that they're the actual inventors of the hippie aesthetic and like the hippie Mm -hmm. style, uh, which was more called the freak style in their parlance, right? In the early Mm sixties. And, um, and, You know, I think everybody knows, I mean, who Frank Zappa was. But just to, uh, let's see, um, maybe we'll talk about, uh, well, like Vito Pelikas was, uh, he, he was like a, he owned like a sculpting studio or something, like an art studio in West Hollywood, like near the Sunset Strip. And, um, he was an older guy and I guess everyone says that he made his money like teaching like wealthy Beverly Hills housewives, you know, uh, dowagers or whatever. Um, and, and people kind of liked it because he, um, he would use nude models and stuff in like his art classes. So like teenagers and stuff, um, would be, would want to go and stuff like that. And he had this. he had this gaggle of young women and I guess was very into doing a lot of LSD and having orgies and stuff like that. And he became kind of like this fixture on the sunset strip. And actually a lot of people credit him, uh, with basically getting, filling the clubs, like the whiskey, a go, go, um, like when bands like the birds or the doors or Frank Zappa first came to play because he would show up with like kind of like this band of like merry pranksters, but they were all like hot young groupies and they would all be like, I don't know, maybe on acid or something, but they would just be dancing like you know, like the classic sixties, like wild psychedelic kind of dance style. And they were such a sight to see that. And the, the venues apparently would let them in for free. Um, And then like People said you know that would Basically be kind of the main draw like you wouldn't Even hear I think yeah some people In the bird said like I don't even think people were Like listening to us they were just like vibing Off of these dancers And things like that Um, which is Relevant because a lot of these Bands um, uh, McGowan also illustrates that You know and this might sting a little bit But like they weren't really uh, Good musicians or in some (laughs) cases Musicians at all Like and and that's another strong takeaway, really powerful takeaway from this book is that we in our popular imagination, there was a line. I think the great example that he uses is there's a line between bands like the Monkees and bands like, uh, Buffalo Springfield or Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young or the birds. Right. And like one was like corporate manufactured, like a quote unquote fake band. Like I remember this my whole life. Yes. Like they used to play the monkeys on like Nick at night and you'd watch them and it was like, Oh, but they were like a fake band, not like the Beatles or like yeah. one of these other bands like there. Right, but then yes. yeah, McGowan lays out that like, well actually, first of all, like, uh, I mean, the Monkees were actually real musicians as well. They were actually yeah. kind of no different from like Stephen Stills or David Crosby. And in fact, several of the the very important, you know, uh, respectable artists of Laurel Canyon, like Stephen Stills, auditioned to be in the Monkees and they didn't get in. Yes. <laughs> so, I found
0: so that part like, of the book actually to be very interesting because, yeah, he does kind of explore this sort of like illusory distinction between the Monkees. And I think the Beach Boys is one that uh Uh comes up a fair you know like because i think that he actually says he says when he talks about the beach boys some readers might be inclined to dismiss the beach boys as being roughly on par with that other much maligned laurel canyon band the monkeys so that to me was odd because i feel like maybe this before this book was written maybe like uh or maybe like in his circles because i feel like the beach boys have Maybe it's from talking to you, but I feel they have more credibility, <laughs> you know, than the monkeys. But there is that kind of like break in their career where or like, yeah. you know, their sort of oeuvre where like, yes, yeah, some of their stuff definitely could be like in the area of like you know thank you girl you know like type like (laughs) you know like shit you know like uh yeah yeah but no i think a lot uh, of people
2: i remember like my when i got into i had a friend of mine or a couple of friends of mine who got like really into like the beach boys and like their kind of mythology and like pet sounds and stuff and so i kind of had that little bias against the beach boys before that when i was younger like you know i mean like yeah sure california girls is like a good song or whatever but i always kind of thought like (laughs) going down surfing and having some fun (laughs) was like just like so lame, yeah, just like literally, like, like yeah, even as a child, I was like, yeah, yeah, this
0: is corny as hell, like, get me away from this. And like, if someone's yeah, yeah. like the Beach Boys, like, yeah, like, uh, you know, whereas, and like, their name, uh, the, their, their sort of, name yeah, sounds uh, for goofy. Sure. Yeah, you know? and the sort of melancholic, like that. You, know, you wouldn't imagine like the melancholic quality of like the songs on Pet Sounds, you know? Yeah. Like uh, that, you know, uh, like uh, you know, um, I know there's an answer or something, like about like uh-huh. trying to deal yeah. with like all these people on drugs, or like, uh, you know, you wouldn't really make. And like, I think that some people, still I just have that wasn't
2: idea. made for these times.
0: Yeah, but yeah, exactly. But it speaks to kind of the sort of illusion of the difference between a band like that and the monkeys because like, yeah, some people actually do perceive the beach boys as being kind of like the monkeys. Um, when in that yeah, sense, and, like, uh, but in, also in way, I think and in a way they originally were, you know, kind of very much like kind the monkeys of. and you can kind of see, you know, like well uh, that
2: that's the, yeah. that's the real revelation is that a lot of these bands were just like the monkeys. Like yeah. in fact, mm-hmm. almost ident except for the one critical thing, whereas the monkeys were like an exoteric, Hey, we're putting together a band. Right. Um, you know, it kind of, it reminds, this reminds me, it all reminds me of boy band stuff in like the late nineties, early two thousands, which I think it's another thing that people will go, whoa, 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 what like, stop what you're saying. Like this is, I, people would get triggered. Um, if you started to say that, what's really the difference between like pedo billionaire con man, Lou Pearlman, uh, getting Max Martin to produce the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, um, pretty much based on image. And like, th- they were just singers and like dancers or whatever, they didn't have any musical skills per se. And like, what's the difference between that and like Buffalo Springfield people? I people want to fight me over that, you know? Like, how dare you? Like, this is <laughs> that was real music. But then when you look at it, it's like, well, actually, like no. In most cases, a lot of these bands they were singers who didn't really have like virtuosic musical uh, backgrounds at all. And as um as we see again and again. That, like, you know, this wasn't acknowledged at the time. It's somewhat better known today. But so many, I would almost argue the majority of the hit singles and the big records that came out of Laurel Canyon specifically were actually the product of a group of session musicians uh, who were called informally the Wrecking Crew, who worked for producer Phil Spector, uh, who eventually became like a crazy murderer right um yeah uh, like he killed somebody eventually um but he was like the hard charging kind of crazy uh almost like the don draper of like 60s record producers yeah. who did some kind of motown stuff and then moved into uh producing a lot of you know uh, a lot of these la bands so like even on pet sounds that is the wrecking crew playing the music and that's actually well that's one case where it's well known because the the compositions were so complex and you know to brian wilson's credit like he did write and compose the beach boys music so it wasn't okay. fully like the monkeys where i actually don't know if the monkeys wrote any of their own material they were capable of doing it they were no less capable than like david crosby at writing their own material and you know if you look at the birds their first album is almost all covers like they most of their records even the graham parsons era they went through a bunch of different lineups but the vast majority of bird songs are are basically covers of folk songs set to like electric music you know electric Mm -hmm. instrumentation so you know then if you just go down the line like cal the mamas and the papas california Dreamin', monday monday all of pet sounds uh, most of the birds' early music, with the exception of uh, Roger McGuinn's 12 uh, string guitar, was all the wrecking crew. It was all one band of like incredibly talented like jazz musicians, mostly, who were brought in. And, you know, that's really where like the sound I mean, that shit is actually good. You know, I think we can say that like the musicianship on those records and the production quality Phil Spector's wall of sounds and stuff like that was actually kind of, um, innovative and stuff, but it really undermines so many myths about like American arts and culture that all of these people were kind of like the faces that were put on the same band, just playing songs for everybody and like not being credited for it. So, you know, yeah. I mean, when I was a teenager listening to the 60s music, I just assumed that everybody on the cover of the album were the people playing the instruments. But uh, in many cases, like David Crosby, like could not play guitar very well. Um, the first bassist they had was a very good mandolin player, but like he didn't know, he'd never played the bass before. And then the drummer, like, also uh, was, like, a beatnik who had, like, you know, played bongo drums before, but he wasn't, like, a drummer. So, like, they just, like, swapped out all those people with the Wrecking Crew, and that's why the record sounds good. But when they would go, and this brings back to Vito, when they would go out to play at the Whiskey at Go-Go, they sucked, like they couldn't play yes. live music well and that that's the thing about the beach boys that that is said as well is that they were not a particularly good live band and you know it it kind of took them years to like you know i mean dennis wilson was the drummer he was the notorious for like not being a very good drummer and stuff like that but you know when they would all go on these shows uh mcgowan does point this out that you know these super real artists would always play they would always basically lip sync their songs and it's very odd when you go watch, like, American Bandstand or the Ed Sullivan Show, for the most part. I think maybe, like, the Rolling Stones played live or something, and uh, that's what they, like, they... I forget what they said. Like, they said a lyric. They weren't, let's spend the night together, and they got banned, which is probably an op just to, like, establish their street cred or something. But, you know, um, but all these people were playing, like, uh, even, like, Neil Young, who, like, I've seen live before. I think Neil Young is, like, very talented. But actually, they... uh, According to McCowan, uh, they had to add Neil Young to Crosby, Stills and Nash because none of them were like good enough live performers to actually like go on tour and like have a successful big and Neil Young, at least, was a pretty like entertaining uh, spirited, you know, live performer and guitarist and, and singer. So they had to throw that why in there to like, you know, push them. And then they got, I think, you know, a couple like session musicians basically to back them up on bass and drums. Uh, you know, and then let Crosby probably turn Crosby's amp down and like, let him pretend to play guitar. Um, you know, but, yeah. Uh, but it yeah, so that's like, a little bit yeah.
0: of that, like Kenneth anger remark uh, about the Jonas brothers and how like, you know, he appreciated the Jonas brothers and their sort of uh, that Disney, like 3d or whatever. And he saw them as kind of like an ancient tradition of like reverence for one's idols and suffering for, you know, the girls who would line up to see the Jonas Brothers movie, like suffering for their idols that's wow. something that is very much like the monkeys, like, you know, I mean, Kenneth Anger comes up in this book a lot. Like that is. Was, well, you know, I mean, that's also show, that's, you know, like dude, that's the that's monkeys,
2: also yeah. the, the groupie culture yeah. in general is that that's yeah. what it like suffering for your idols. And so th- that actually brings us right back to like to Vito Polikas because he had this like army of like freak groupies who kind of um, were the first manifestation of that even before uh, kind of Beatlemania. But then, really, in like 1965. So basically, he would start going, you know, with these people to like dance and freak out and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that would, and then he was also just like, uh, the birds actually started out playing, I think, in like his studio, like his art studio. Like he, he would use them. Uh, Uh, He would let them use it, you know, to practice and stuff. And then he would go to all the early birds gigs um, and with all these beautiful young women. um, And uh, I guess he was also like a little bit of a uh, pimp, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and he was right in the heart of it. And I'm trying and then became very close with Frank Zappa. um, And uh, and I think there was a let me see um also just to throw out just like how because it, it, these connections we'll probably just add them as they go um oh yeah it's worth noting that um that let's see oh yeah on page 68 um Vito Policus, like uh his first cousin um married Winthrop Rockefeller in 1948 and became Bobo Rockefeller um but Vito's family apparently was not invited to the nuptials because like uh, British royalty and like all these people were there and, and they were a kind of poor immigrant family they were Lithuanian I think and uh, you know he grew up somewhere in um, in uh, Pennsylvania yeah the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were both there and the Marquess of Blandford uh, and then he moved to LA in 1949 um, and uh, I guess he yeah he was like a clay sculptor you know, artist and um, and he did go to jail for a while for an armed robbery when he was young um, and he married in 61. He married a, a Sue, I think, but it's spelled S Z O who was previously known as Susan Th- Cynthia Schaefer. He was 48 at the time and she was 18. She'd only been 16 when they met and they made their home in a building on the corner of Laurel Avenue and Beverly Boulevard, uh, just below the mouth of Laurel Canyon and practically within spitting distance of Manson victim, JC brings hair salon at street level was Sue's clothing boutique, which has been credited by some scenesters with being the very first to introduce hippie fashions. Um, upstairs were living quarters for Vito, Sue and their firstborn son, Godo, uh, which we'll, we'll get to him in a minute. Felicus uh, made a living of sorts by giving clay modeling lessons to Beverly Hills matrons who found the atmosphere in his studio exciting. According to most accounts, it wasn't really the Mayan tomb decor of the studio, that kind of goes to like Dr. Hodor that we'll get to later, that many of the matrons found so exciting, but rather Vito's reportedly insatiable sexual appetite and John Holmesian physique. In any event, Vito's students apparently included such Hollywood luminaries as Jonathan Winters, Mickey Rooney, and Steve Allen. And... So he had a sidekick named Carl Franzoni who has claimed in interviews that his, quote, mother was a countess. And his father was a stone carver, Mason, uh, from Rutland, Vermont. Mm -hmm. The family was brought from Italy, from the quarries in the northern part of Italy, to cut the stone for the monuments of the United States. That would make his ancestors, it stands to reason, of considerable importance in the Masonic community. And there were, in fact, Uh, a couple brothers (laughs) named Franzoni who were brought over from Italy in the early 1800s to to carve the Masonic monuments of Washington. So, you know, uh, so, yeah, they made all his, Mm -hmm. (laughs) this guy is the ancestor of the Italian Masons. Uh, who built all the Masonic uh, things. Uh, and yeah, uh, yeah yes. so he, he it uh, sounded like he might have um, some kind of like mafia kind of connections. Um, right, and also, yeah. I just wanted to point out here, because this name, somebody else uh, pointed this out years ago on Twitter, but uh, one of the other main guys in his crew was a bizarre character named Ricky Applebaum who had a mustache on one side of his face and a half a beer in the other. And then a bunch of girls who would later become part of Frank Zappa's GTO project, like a groupie band he set up, and uh, a lot of other colorful characters who don pseudonyms like Linda Bob, Butchie, Beetle Bob, Emerald, and Karen Yum Yum. Um, but just to go back for a second to Ricky Applebaum, wouldn't you know that Ricky Applebaum is the father of the based Tor warrior, internet freedom hacker dude, Jacob Applebaum? Applebaum, who like some of you might remember. If if you've been on like paranoid Twitter long enough, then um or just like hacker anonymous like kind of adjacent Twitter, he is the kind of um celebrity Hacker dude um, who helped develop, uh, he was a core member of the Tor project and was like a huge advocate um, and was also a representative of WikiLeaks. He, you know, he also did a bunch of art, collaborated with Ai Weiwei and Laura Poitras of Snowden fame. And uh, yeah, he used to tweet uh, under IO error, but I think he, oh, he was an active member of the Cult of the Dead Cow hacker collective that um, Beta O'Rourke was in. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. and um and was also uh he worked for kink.com and Greenpeace, cool. Oh my fucking god. Yeah. And also volunteered for the Ruckus Society and the Rainforest Action Network. Um, but then, of course, uh, he was kicked out of tour in 2016 following allegations of sexual abuse. But then a bunch of people were like, he's being like uh, oppressed because he loves WikiLeaks, like Free Julian, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. And he lives in Germany, fittingly enough. Um, and, uh, oh, Applebaum was among several people to gain access to former NSA contractor Edward Snowden's top secret documents in 2013. Wow. Oh, I I mm. definitely trust him. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Everyone, uh, sign up
0: for Signal. Um, sign up know, for
2: Signal. Uh, <laughs> Snowden
0: uses it. He's not dead yet. Therefore, uh, that's, you know...
2: Uh, He's not dead. He certainly dead hasn't dead been dead. MK'd. Uh, he hasn't gotten the Vacaville treatment. Not mm. not any chance of that. Um, yeah. yeah, so th- this guy... Um, uh, oh, you know, he traveled to... Uh, he In 2005, he talked at the chaos, the 22nd Chaos Communication Congress, where he talked about his travels to Iraq, crossing the border by foot, for installing the Internet satellites in Kurdistan, and his visits to New Orleans post-Hurricane uh, Katrina. the
0: ones that... Uh, I bet you could use those Internet satellites uh, with an iPad to call
2: <laughs> <in the contract. laughs> Wow, um, based the, ally. Uh, yeah, wow, okay, the, Comrade um, Jacob Applebaum. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, he right. – so this guy is kind of canceled now, but, like, uh, like I knew he was sus basically for years, even beyond his, like, weird sexual harassment things. But just because he felt like a total, like, fake hacker spook person and then wouldn't you know it, his dad was running around with the inventor of free culture who also had a lot of problematic um sexual mm, behaviors uh, or ideas about particularly – adolescent sexuality, Mm -hmm. um, and things like that. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, Vito Polikas, he was also, uh, I believe he was present. He was kind of present at all kinds of things, including I think at the famous, uh, Altamont free concert that we talked about in the Kenneth Anger episode. Um, Mm -hmm. which, uh, which McGowan does do some good stuff on because like a lot of these characters, like a lot of it converges basically, on Altamont, you know, you had Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers playing there. And uh, of course, the Kenneth Anger connections. Well, maybe let's talk about that real quick. Because uh, the son of Vito Pelikas, uh what was his name?
0: Uh, Godot.
2: Godot. Godot. Yeah. Godot. Uh, yeah. Uh,
0: starting yeah, the tradition. I, I don't know if the cadence was like Godot, like Vito or Godot, like Waiting for Godot, but uh, yes, he was cast uh, to play Lucifer originally in Lucifer Rising. Uh huh. Yes, he uh, was. And, and um, yes, but what happened was that he died.
2: Uh, well, yeah, yeah. You, you. Well, and he was also very bizarrely. Uh, he was like photographed and featured in uh Life magazine in 1966. I guess where they did a story on. Vito Policus and his wife wa- and his groovy wife. And there, you know, th- that's another thing that pops up again is like time and life. And I believe, uh, I forget which one is run by Henry Luce. who was like skull and bones and knew the bushes and all that jazz. Um, but they they were there at every step of the way to be like, look at this interesting new psychedelic thing that people are doing. And, you know, going yeah. back to, I think, Gordon Wasson's uh, article about magic mushrooms in 1957. And then here they are, like in 1966, being like, look at this guy Vito. Oh, it's so interesting. And um, and I guess I don't know how Kenneth Anger came. You know, uh, he definitely knew these people. And yeah. he, uh, I've heard he... some
0: really like, you know, well, Kenneth Anger, we've talked about him and his sort of, um, interest in, you know, obviously in sensuality and, uh, you know, these, these, uh, and the young men, I mean, I don't know, uh, if at least his movies don't show like necessarily an erotic gaze towards very young children, but I definitely have heard, the, uh certain things about i i don't i don't recall if they mentioned they mentioned in this book but i do recall uh maybe while we were researching for the kenneth anger episode that i do recall hearing certain things about uh uh the treatment of goto in the laurel canyon community mm-hmm. uh there is yeah. mention of uh this renaissance fair uh group mm. that i guess was ron patterson's thing um, that t-
2: that's another thing proto-
0: burning I, Man. Uh, yeah, and...
2: I had no idea That the renaissance fairs were sus I always maybe felt they were kind of sus But I had no idea they were connected in this way
0: Yeah Like they were um, a San Francisco
2: uh, new agey thing
0: Right, and there were sort of uh, You know, improvis- improvisational theater workshops Involved there for, ch- for children That was part of the renaissance fair thing And mm-hmm. uh, McGowan wonders If, uh, you know, maybe Godopalakis Had been involved in that um, and he said, as any event, there is something decidedly creepy about Trojans' workshops being hosted in a small, tight-knit community that was home to child pornography ring and more than its fair share of pedophiles. I definitely have heard, like, you know, accounts of Laurel Canyon parties... Involving Goto Policus in like a way that yeah uh, uh, yeah is, I know, just want to not good uh, uh, yeah. not good I I just um, want to read
2: a little uh of like what some other people that McGowan relays like what they said about the the strange death of of Goto Policus um mm-hmm. McGowan wrote according to Barry Miles Vito and Sue's three year old son Goto had fallen through a trap door on the roof of the building and died uh um let's see. Yeah, uh, wow. Michael Walker oh, yeah. Michael Walker tells of a... There's a lot of trap doors in these houses, too. Um, Michael yeah. Walker tells of a two- or three-year-old Godot falling to his death from a scaffold at the studio. An article in the San Francisco Weekly had it as a, quote, five-year-old boy who died when he fell through a skylight. Super groupie and former freak dancer Pamela DeBar agreed with the skylight scenario, but not the age. And she said, this is a very creepy quote, Vito's exquisite little puppet child, Godot, fell through a skylight during a wacky photo session on the roof and died at age three and a half. Albin Pfisterer of the band love recalled a much darker scenario. Quote, Vito got married, had a baby, gave it acid and it fell off the roof and died. Um, um yeah, actually, then, yeah,
0: this, there's a and, warning warning on this, yeah. but I did, they did actually mention uh, a story, which I guess I had, I had heard earlier. It did come up uh, here where, uh, W- he says it would be perhaps instructive to examine the context in which this tragedy played out. We know, for example, that a musician and writer named Raphael told writer Michael Walker that he had been present one evening at Vito's place when Godot was brought out. Uh, you know, they say that uh, mm-hmm. they passed him around. Uh, you know, in a w- uh, with their mouths in a way that was supposed to be introducing him to sensuality uh Na- he was yeah, naked
2: yeah,
0: yeah yeah uh yes they pass around naked in a circle with their mouths is what is said sorry just like so uh upsetting Ugh, yeah it's disgusting but, uh and uh yeah um sorry <laughs> need to recover for a bit but uh there's another uh anecdote the an equally disturbing anecdote almost uh following that uh where after um you know they uh the child had died um des barris uh says Pamela, I was beside. Yeah. Yeah, I was beside myself with sorrow, but Vito and Zoo uh insisted on continuing our plans for the evening. We went out dancing, and when people asked where Little Godot was, Vito said he died today. It was really, really weird. Um, wow. Um, so, yeah, yeah, and then not, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Then,
2: and then from there, uh, you know, McGowan says adding to the weirdness factor is is the full text of the quote from the San Francisco Weekly that I previously presented an edited version of. Quote, Kenneth Anger's first candidate to play Lucifer, a five-year-old boy whose hippie parents had been fixtures in the Los Angeles counterculture scene, fell through a skylight to his death. Like like a fallen angel? Uh, Oh, Mm -hmm. God. Uh, Mm -hmm. By 1967, Anger had relocated to San Francisco and was searching for a new Lucifer. As some readers may be aware, he soon found his new Lucifer in the form of Mansonite and former grassroots guitarist Bobby Beausoleil. Uh, uh, I like so that yeah, he, that, uh, that says, that, as some uh, readers ugh.
0: may be aware, like, yes, uh, you know, people <laughs> yeah, can of get and in from the kind of anger. Definitely. The, um, yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. And um, Bosley, uh, you know, uh, just in the same passage, uh, Bosley has said th- that, you know, some of anger's film projects were for private collectors. Quote, right. every once in a while, he'd do a little thing that wouldn't be for distribution. Biographer Bill Landis has written that projects such as those led at one time to anger being investigated by the police and suspicion that he had been producing stuff enough films
0: yes we mentioned this in the Kenneth anger episode i mean and he acknowledges Mm -hmm. that he does make a lot of things on commission like both those things that he releases and things that are are private you know for the gettys for instance Mm -hmm. uh you know for uh john paul getty jr he was uh retained by him to make films so and
2: i uh, i I, there was another mention that i wasn't aware of yet that i want to say was it abigail folger that was also financing kenneth anger Um, I mean, she was one of the Manson mm -hmm. victims, and she was a Folger heiress. Uh, But it might have been her. Uh, I I had to look through... yeah it, yes, was, yeah, it was. Yeah, on page two hundred nine, it was at Cass. Yeah. It was at Mama Cass's home that Charlie Manson first met her neighbor, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, who helped finance Kenneth Anger's films, like the one that was supposed to star Godot Polikas but instead starred Bobby Bosile. So, I mean, right. yeah, that's weird. That's also not well known that Charlie Manson met Abigail Folger before the murders at Mama Cass's home. Another, you know, great missed opportunity, Tarantino. Fucking hack? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. Like, come on. Um, um d- just to just to throw in one more little uh, Kenneth Anger thing. We'll get back to him later. But uh, uh, you know, not long before the murder of John Lennon, assassin Mark David Chapman had approached cult filmmaker Kenneth Anger and offered him a gift of live bullets. Just days after Lennon was felled, Anger's long delayed final cut of Lucifer Rising made its debut. Made its New York debut very near the bloodstained grounds the Dakota Apartments, which, of course, was the setting of Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, um, Mm -hmm. etc. So anger is just floating. Like, I did not know that Abigail Folger was funding anger before her death. That's kind of... Again, you'd, you'd think that would be, you know, more relevant, but I guess they...
0: Uh, you know, it's all in the family. Uh, not important. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who cares? Yeah, um, you know, and just happens, so normal. Uh, so you know.
2: I, I think, uh, to, and so moving on. That just the the final thing I'll say about Vito for now is uh, that some people have compared Vito Palikas to the, the, a later person was very similar, which is Charles Manson. And McGowan talked to a member of the Palikas family for the book. And he said he would let them provide the final words on the king of the freaks. Asked by the author if he believed that Vito was a possible pedophile, he answered, quote, probably, but I believe you have to go deeper into the libido and drives of so many rock stars and famous people who had an unhealthy relationship with sex and drugs. Any biography of the rockers of that time and probably any time just skirts around the reality that their greatest secret and shame includes the sex they had and have with very young girls and boys. Roman Polanski just got caught. So, uh, uh yeah. yeah. That makes um, sense.
1: Well, I don't do publicity bawling for you anymore. The first word in this song is discorporate. It means to leave your body. Discorporate and come with me. Shifting, drifting, cloudless, starless, velvet valleys. And the South sea. Wah, wah. Unbind your mind, there is no time To lick your stamps and paste them in this call and we will begin Wah wah! Flower power sucks! Diamonds on velvets On grottoes On grottoes On of velvet and satin, to music, by magic, by people that happen to enter the world of a strange purple jello, the dreams as they live them are all mellow,
2: yeah it definitely does when you, cuz you know this guy was super tight with frank zappa mr mm-hmm. cool freedom badass like yeah just you know it's like i so love that cool. quote
0: from frank zappa about when like Václav Havel invited him like as an ambassador like a cultural ambassador to czechoslovakia or something uh, and he was like, I, I was so excited to go there just to watch communism fall or whatever like no yeah, watch communism
2: he said he came here to uh i came here to watch communism die
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: uh, right. and then said he like, he, I'm a capitalist. He, here. Yeah, uh, yeah. He. Right. This is a yeah. In 1990, uh, he visited Czechoslovakia at the request of newly installed President Václav Havel, who asked him to serve as a consultant on trade and tourism. Zappa was treated by the new Czech administration which wasn't as nearly as popular at home as it was in the West. See, that's why I love McGowan. He doesn't fall for the anti-communist bullshit. Um, As though he was making an official state visit. He announced that he had, quote, come to to Czechoslovakia to see communism die. I have been an enthusiastic capitalist for years. He also announced his intention of starting up an international consulting firm aimed at breaking down barriers to Western trade and investment. Toward that end, he began meeting with multinational corporate entities that had an interest in investing in Czechoslovakia um and
0: there are so many insane frank zappa stories like uh i just dug up this one uh which i think is around the same place in in the book um but uh he uh in the spring of 1967 signed a contract to play at the garrick theater in new york an engagement that would last six months on one notable occasion zappa invited active duty marines onto the stage and handed them a doll which we should have be to pretend was a, you know, a certain slur involving, uh, starting with G and ending with K, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, baby, yep. the GIs happily obliged to request and gleefully dismembered the doll while Frank looked on. Though Marines weren't normally a part of the show, concerts by the mothers often included the hurling of several baby doll heads into the crowd of gaping groovers. Uh, like, yeah, uh, awesome. Radical. Like, uh, really that's cool. literally, like, the exact opposite of, like, groovy uh like he should have called this like, yeah
2: he should i like guess that's why stage people stage
0: to like dismantle tear a baby apart or like a surrogate baby apart like limb from limb like uh, I, what like uh yeah um, I guess
2: that's why people, you know, make bands and call themselves War Crime. Ironically, nowadays they're just yeah, doing a Zappa thing, exactly. you know. It's and I bet they're w- I, you know. I bet you, if you talked like a Zappa stan, that they would be like, "Oh no, man! See, he was actually being ironic and like a uh, like mocking like mil- like I don't even know if they could they could pull that off, but I feel like some people would try that. Like he was mocking militarism, man, and like he uh, was just being like absurdist, yes. man. Like, come on, like you know. But if right. n- if you look pretty consistently at his entire his opinions uh, over his entire life and even the message in a lot of his music uh and the the way people who knew him described him he was like a, he was kind of like john millius like he was a gun-toting right-wing control freak who like hated communism and loved like uh capitalism and was like kind of you know just like a uh, a libertarian basically uh but because Uh, he talks shit to like was
0: just like a super jingoistic fascist like openly like he didn't really uh like try to hide it and was like proud of it which is interesting uh considering like that's not really part of his public or you know uh, the way people think maybe about frank zappa or something that they readily associate with him uh because like he definitely was like he was all about it Uh, like, I mean, people think that he's like
2: kind of a libertarian leftist practically, but that is, Um, uh, there's really nothing about it, it really is kind of fascist. But you know, he dresses up in this goofy thing and he makes this like boopity bop, boop bop, I'm the slime man, like, uh, goofy (laughs) carnivalesque prog music. Uh, and you know, so how could he be a straight square conservative? This is where it starts to be like you know, judging people by, like, you know, the styles you're wearing or how long your haircut is, you start to see, like, politics really becoming more aestheticized, and, like, mm-hmm. you could have, like, right-wing hippies, like, in The Grateful Dead or Frank Zappa, but as long as they have long hair, they somehow code as, like, rebel, like, left-wing rebels to, like, the status quo. Mm-hmm. It's very... Um, even if they are, like, relatively open about their kind of right-wing politics and stuff but yeah and it just makes it
0: all the more like odd where i think as you mentioned like his dad was like designing like icbms or like developing like chemical warheads yeah 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 yeah. let
2: let me yeah maybe we should go into that because you know frank frank zappa didn't just come out of nowhere he was born um as mcgowan relates many many times like so many of these people was born into a career military family And his dad um, basically – Frank spent a lot of his early childhood at the Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, um, which was the hub of U.S. chemical warfare research as well as being by the government's own admission the site of human mind control experimentation in the post World War II years. So his first schooling was at the Edgewood School, which is on the Edgewood Arsenal complex where his father worked and the family lived. Um, At some point in the 1940s, the Zappa clan relocated to Florida for a short time for unknown reasons, but they soon returned to Baltimore and the Edgewood Arsenal. In 1951, Father Francesco was offered a permission at Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, but he chose instead to head further west and relocate the family to absolute spook hub Monterey, California, while there he taught classes at the Naval Postgraduate School. After a couple years in Monterey, the Zappas relocated once again first briefly to Claremont before moving on to the San Diego area, the current home of the world's largest naval fleet. While there, Francesco put his skills to work on the Atlas Missile Project, a program that would produce America's very first ICBMs. Zappa's area of expertise would tend to indicate that the U.S. was looking into developing chemical warheads for those ICBMs. That, though, is impossible to determine since Zappa's work in San Diego and elsewhere is classified. In the summer of 56, the Zappa family hit the road once again, this time landing in Lancaster, California, right alongside edwards air force base that's just north of la frank zappa wouldn't be the only rising star to later arrive in laurel canyon by way of the sparsely populated wasteland of lancaster joining him would be tragically short-lived bird clarence white america vocalist dewey bunnell and the indescribably bizarre don vliet better known as captain beefheart uh and then in March of 1963, Zappa famously appeared on the Steve Allen show to, quote, play a bicycle as a musical instrument. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Crazy. Yeah,
0: that part. It's so <sighs> yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, and that's a mere uh, Herb Cohen, who has a super sus-like mercenary background, who had become the manager of Frank Zappa and fellow Canyonites Linda Ronstadt, Alice Cooper, Lenny Bruce, and Tim Buckley, returned to Los Angeles. After conveniently being in the Congo, at the time of the CIA-sponsored coup that toppled and led directly to the execution of Patrice Lumumba, the country's first legally elected prime minister, Cohen had spent time in Copenhagen, Denmark, where he functioned as an international arms dealer. Um, And yeah, that, um, you know, then he got his residency in New York where he had the Marines, you know, uh, rip apart a a fake baby who he said was Vietnamese. Um, And then I guess they, they developed a habit, the Mothers of Invention, his band, Uh, hurling severed baby doll heads into the crowd of gaping groovers um, as Pamela DeBar uh, remembers it. And then on the aut- autumnal equinox of 1967, Zappa married Na- Navy brat Adelaide Gail Slotman, who was then working as a former cop gangster Elmer Valentine's personal assistant, overseeing the operations of the whiskey a go and the Trip. Just one week later, uh, daughter Moon Unit Zappa was born. She would ultimately be joined by three siblings, each bearing a progressively more bizarre name, Dweezel Apple. Ahmet Amuka Rodon Zappa and Diva Thin Muffin Pigeen Zappa all would be pulled out of school at the age of 15 and their father would refuse to pay for any of them to attend college. Um, And uh, yeah, and so he eventually moved into this house called the Log Cabin, which was like right at the main intersection uh, on Laurel Canyon Boulevard and I think uh, Lookout Mountain Avenue where there's, like, the, the famous uh, uh, Laurel Canyon Country Store and a couple little businesses. So he lived in, like, this palatial, like, log cabin kind of compound and would let people kind of live in it uh, all the time. I don't know, like, like just hippies, drifters, groupies, all this kind of stuff. There's a strong overlap uh, with the kind of Vito Policus kind of group, and they would dance at Frank Zappa's shows. Yeah, and, I mean, Zappa... Uh, I don't know. Like that background, of course, is very interesting because Zappa and a lot of people don't, I think, realize this. Zappa never really took psychedelics or LSD.
0: Uh, oh, right. Yeah. That, well, he, he points that out as being like a, or McGowan points it out as being like a consistency among people like Vita Polakis and Frank Zappa and Charles Manson that, like, they surround themselves with people who take drugs very liberally, but they themselves Mm -hmm. either don't abstain or they limit their intake. uh, Yes, yeah. And and that was,
2: Uh, yeah, that was something Manson definitely did, uh, Vito did. Even though um, there was a rare video that was found that was, like, an interview, I think, with Sue and Vito Pelikas in the 60s. I think I linked it on on. The Grateful Dead episode, but there's one where they're kind of saying uh, that it's bad. Like they're speaking negatively, I think maybe in the late 60s, early 70s about LSD. Um, Oh, yeah. There's a quote here. Yeah. um, Where his wife says you know, you shouldn't do LSD. Uh, I tell all my friends, you know, it's a military plot. (laughs) So (laughs) like, okay. So on the one hand you're telling everybody it's a military plot, but then there are all these accounts of people where like, you're all, you're taking it yourself. You're also like giving it out to these like teenage girls that have kind of coalesced around you and you're, uh, definitely kind of serving as an advertisement for it. So, You know, that's that's bizarre and doesn't kind of add up and makes things suspicious. Um, And yeah, I guess, you know, everyone says that, you know, uh, uh, Frank Zappa was uh, very against like the idea of, uh, yeah, personally taking psychedelic drugs. But yet here he is um, with his, you know, Navy brat uh, wife who wouldn't, you know, uh, went to the same kindergarten and maybe grade school as a uh, as Jim Morrison, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, in wa- around Washington D.C. Uh, I think yeah. either Washington or Norfolk, Virginia, because they you know they're both Navy brats, and uh, and I think there might have even been one or two other figures that like were also in that same school, but you know it's a small world, I guess, in the canyon, um, and you know I mean, a- and Zappa, even if you listen to his music, he's kind of openly contemptuous. If you listen to like Absolutely Free. He's Mm -hmm. making fun of the new agey stuff, of the hippie stuff, which like on the one hand, like there is space to make fun of it. It's just that I don't think anybody made fun of it in, like, the right way. Like, this is a PSYOP, like, Well, it was like, like,
0: yeah, well, it's kind of like a sort of superiority. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of like, uh, you know, you disgusting pig fans. Like, you know, uh uh, you're, like, mocking the people who don't... You're mocking the people who don't see that it's a PSYOP, basically. You're mocking, like, the rubes who think, like, you're not, like, a maniacal fascist, uh, you know, uh, and like, who will take LSD, like, because they think that that's what you promote when, like, you actually know that it's bad, or something like that, like that, yeah. like, you know, the, uh, it's punching down, it's, uh, punching it's down. definitely
2: punching down, on, yeah, on like, you little a baby
0: doll, uh, that's meant to represent a Vietnamese child, um, uh, yeah, yeah.
2: I, no, that, um, that is a huge yeah. thing, though, is that, like, he's, he's almost, like, one of the, I don't know, he's almost one of the progenitors of, like, LOL, I'm CIA,
0: uh, yeah, true, in uh, a certain uh, sense, Yes. Um, yeah, it was, it's interesting that he named one of his kids Ahmed. Um, although I, I guess I wouldn't say it's necessarily progressively weirder than Moon Unit. Uh, you know, I mean, Ahmed is a normal... Uh,
2: name uh, well, if we want to you know, go first... there, if we, if we want to go there, he named himself what? out of the founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Ach- Ertegun, yeah, who exactly. was, was the son of like him. a high-ranking yeah. Turkish diplomat who grew up in Washington D.C. on Embassy right. Row and like went to was like an elite he... uh, prep school. Yeah,
0: but was he like a straight up like you know like Young Turk type like you know early?
2: His Trump dad, his dad, was.
0: Like, his, his dad was like his dad
2: was was part of the Young Turk government.
0: Yeah, that's weird. That's extremely bizarre to do. That's like something yeah. that only a fascist would do. Like, uh, uh, like, a, know, a, like a, be the like son of a guy like and add a Turkism as like an American is odd.
2: And um, even McGowan even points out, I mean, he, he labels, one, I think, chapter eight, which is about the, the Hollywood scene at that time. Like their nickname was the Young Turks
0: yeah right uh, yeah he did mention like that, jack but, yeah. nicholson
2: dennis hopper mm-hmm. uh, steve mcqueen all these like uh, yeah big, big shot warren Beatty or whatever like these were the the young turks of hollywood and uh mm-hmm. i guess there was that rod stewart song he doesn't pop up in this but i always found like and obviously like the the ridiculous like Psyopy show like the young turks with like uh what, right, chank Weeger yeah. and everything yeah, like yeah. Uh, I don't know how any Armenian could like be on that show with him. That's called the Turks. Very bizarre. Um, and I think he has denied the Ar- Armenian genocide before. It's like, look, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I remember but there but was like,
0: some kind of yeah. weird thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, it's just like,
2: it's a weird term that is like had a, a long life and like pops up a lot, but I feel like a lot of people don't even know anymore. Like what it refers to. Um, it's just like a thing you say i don't know yeah um, well i
0: guess there's the, like upstarts you know the young turks yeah. it sort of means upstarts in a way um uh-huh. but yeah uh but i mean the way in which they were upstarts is that they were like you know hyper nationalist like secularists who wanted to like purge like all any trace of like arab uh culture like or you know Uh, that like uh, to purify the the turkey or whatever. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's uh, yeah. Um, So yeah. Yeah, So so
2: that guy was the founder of like one of the two biggest record labels that pumped out a lot of these artists. The other one was Capitol Records, which McGowan points out. And I actually was not aware of the reason it's called Capitol with an O uh, records is because it was founded like over a century ago in Washington, D.C. And then eventually they moved to Los Angeles into the sort of iconic, uh, you know, spirally building, cylindrical building. But, you know, so you had basically the two biggest record labels had these deep connections to Washington, D.C., even though they had moved out to Los Angeles. So and then you look at all of the artists uh, who had connections to either, either grew up around Washington, D.C., that kind of area, or, you know, grew up on military bases or were, the sons and daughters of like political families and you know uh it starts to get a little bit huh like weird you know um you know i i think uh we haven't talked about all the backgrounds of of people yet i mean we've gotten through frank zappa um david and crosby we'll, uh, just before uh,
0: we move on from this were frank sure. zappa and Ahmed Ertegun friends or like what like why did he name his son after him uh, well, mcgowan
2: uh mcgowan says that um it uh, looks like they might have been friends um yeah i guess yeah, he launched no, I,
0: frank zappa's career i see yeah right
2: yeah uh-huh, he launched frank zappa's career sense. and and frank zappa admired him so much that he named one of his children after right achmet yeah mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Okay. yeah uh, word
0: uh, all right uh yeah just uh yeah, i just following up on that. And uh, this <laughs> so actually, you
2: know, th- this hits on something that I remembered as well. Uh, I- I'm just reading this little, like, uh, oh, fuck, like, a Denver Post article. But it said, like, uh, the-, the key to Ahmed Erdogan's exet- success was developing a real taste for, like, black music, basically, like, blues right. and R&B. Mm-hmm. And then finding a way to, like, kind of tweak it to appeal to, like, white teenagers. That was the real mm-hmm. kind of... Which I I had thought about even with the Grateful Dead and with like the Rolling Stones and like really with rock and roll in general and like this period of it, because I think um, there is not necessarily evidence to say like rock and roll, uh, you know, came out of real genres that did were organically created like blues and R&B and b Uh, and folk and all of these things like I I think if if we're asking like you know how how far does this kind of like nefarious influence go in like popular music um, I think those genres that came out of like African-American music for the most part um, it's when they were taken and then it seemed like all these people around the early 60s had this idea of like what if we get like a bunch of attractive like long-haired cute boys or whatever to like play this like black music and then, you know, basically then, uh, it, it's a kind of common thing, you know, like in, in yeah. the sense of, uh, you know, kind of stealing the, uh, intellectual artistic labor a little bit. And then
0: another, like, yeah, this is like, yeah, this is just me being like, you know, uh, hyper focused on this, but I, you know, it is interesting, you know, uh, I'm just reading, uh, you know, Ahmed Irtugun's, uh, Wikipedia article now. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, he says, uh, this is a very cringe comment, but, uh, you know, although he attended Landon School, an affluent all male private school in Bethesda, Maryland, Ahmed would joke, I got my real education at Howard, Howard University being a historically black college. Despite his affluent upbringing, Irtagun began to see a different world from his affluent peers. Irtugun would say, I began to discover a little bit about the situation of black people in America and experience immediate empathy with the victims of such senseless discrimination, because although Turks were never slaves, they were, re- uh, yeah, the, they, you know, uh, well, in fact, they were, uh, I guess, you know, like uh, uh, Mamelukes and things like that. And, uh, if, uh-huh. But anyway, uh, they also were slave takers, but uh, they were never regarded, uh, they were regarded as enemies within Europe because of their Muslim beliefs. Uh, and if you follow up on uh, the Wikipedia article of his father This is really something um, You know, of course he was uh, He uh, This is an interesting uh, little factoid Taking part in an Ottoman delegation With a mission to search for reconciliation With the naturalists in Ankara By the end of 1920 Changes destiny while the two Ottoman ministers heading the delegation returned, to, heading the delegation returned to Istanbul after not achieving an understanding with the revolutionaries led by Mustafa Kemal Pasha, that is Ataturk, he chose to join the national struggle and remained in Ankara, leaving behind his young wife and three-year son, uh, Nesuhi. Nesuhi, um, that is, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, so uh, after that, you know, he became an aide to Ataturk. Um, and, you know, then he eventually uh, became the ambassador to Switzerland, France, the United Kingdom, and the United States as a republic's ambassador to Washington. He opened the emphasis probably to African-American jazz musicians who gathered there to play mm. freely in a socio historical context, which was deeply divided by racial segregation at the time. And another interesting fact is that uh, when he did eventually die in 1946, a year after World War II, his body was carried back to Istanbul by the USS Missouri and buried in the garden of a Sufi Teke. Uh, in Sultan Tepe, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his Turkish words right, but I don't know, uh, Mm -hmm. Uska Udar, uh, near his sheikh grandfather, Ibrahim Edhim Effendi, who was once head of the Teke, so, uh, I guess he was also descendant of, like, the head of a, like, a hedge of a Sufi Teke, like a oh, wow. you know Sufi order which is ironic because like that was kind of one of the, the main things that uh At-Tark was involved in like stomping out uh for like you know not that it hadn't been cracked down on heavily before but uh-huh. uh you know really wiping out the face of of uh, turkish society but um hmm. interesting yeah like uh it's interesting to consider like the links between like uh dervish or like sufi music like the appreciation for jazz like the long hair thing um mm-hmm. but, you know another thing that yeah. stuck out at me was like the garden of Allah apartment complex oh that, yeah yeah where dorothy uh, you know, walker of,
2: lived um yeah yeah
0: yeah a lot of yeah. these people like stayed there um or you know uh it, a lot of uh you know figures in this whole milieu um like uh yeah um I guess, uh, yeah, Dorothy Parker, um, or sorry, not Dorothy Parker, but, uh, the, the Morgan Cabot, the, the uh, grandson of, the godson of poet and writer Dorothy Parker, um, okay. Yeah. Who McGowan
2: um, says is, a uh, she was kind of like a socialist, like, in the 20s, um, but I think also had a lot of, a. Uh, I I think she attempted suicide a few times, uh, it, McGowan says that she was born Dorothy Rothschild, but... He didn't say if she was actually. Related uh,
0: yeah, I guess, to any was, of I guess it was. I guess it was Dorothy Parker. Yeah, it's the Morgan Cow was the son, but yeah, sorry, it's a bit of confusing sentence, but yeah, Dorothy Parker, I guess, lived in the Garden of the Law apartments and attempted more than once to kill herself there. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, but yeah, that um, was a big uh, like hub. Uh, a lot of this stuff, um, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot like of
2: creepy that. stuff all in up fact, and down the God canyon. Does Don
0: have a Garden of a Law song, uh, like uh, as an homage to the the Garden of a Law? He uh,
2: might on Inside Job, maybe. Uh, I don't know. He yeah. might. He 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 did live in Laurel Canyon, but in the 70s, after the after most of the action of this kind of started right. to sort of cool off, um, or the the weirdest years, which are, I would say like 65 to like 69. Um are, uh but I mean still such shit um going on through uh the Wonderland murders in like nineteen eighty or eighty one. Kinda of was like the real capstone of uh of like that Royal Canyon era. into the doors a little bit
0: yeah nice. well one of the figures who I think you know ways of the doors is one of the most interesting to come up in the book is Paul Rothschild um, mm-hmm. and he has like a bunch of uh, interlocks to a bunch of people in the broader Laurel Canyon scene uh, one of the one of my favorite uh, paragraphs in like the whole or in series of paragraphs like a page or so in the whole book uh, has to do with him um, which uh, it begins uh, saying, Yet another curious character to take up residence in Laurel Canyon was producer Paul Rothschild, who played a key role in shaping the sound of both The Doors and Love. Uh, in June 1981, Sports Illustrated publisher Philip Howlett penned a short piece to introduce readers to new writer Bjarn Rostang. I hope I'm saying that right. Born mm-hmm. in Lincoln, New York, Rostang grew up in various places in Connecticut, where he attended what he recalls as it even dozen schools. I got my B.A. and Master's in English from the University of Connecticut, he says. Then I, did my, then I did part of a Ph.D. at the University of Washington before going into the Army Intelligence Corps in 1959. We had Paul Rothschild, who later became producer for The Doors, and Janice Joplin, to give you some idea of what the unit was like. Uh, all right. It was, in all <laughs> likelihood, like countless other intelligence units designed to churn out shapers of public opinion, whether actors, novelists, newsmen, or in this case, sports writers and producers of popular music. It is quite shocking, of course, to learn that the handler of two of Laurel Canyon's most influential and groundbreaking bands had a background in intelligence work. Apparently, the search is on for anyone of any prominence in the Laurel Canyon scene who didn't have direct connections to the intelligence community. Bjarne Rustang would, perhaps, not surprisingly, uh, develop his own indirect connections to the Laurel Canyon music scene. His most notable contribution to the field of literature was penning the mass-market paperback version of Phantom of the Paradise, Uh, the campy tale of a Phil Spector-inspired music producer who had sold his soul to the devil for fame and fortune and who subsequently manipulated a disfigured young singer-songwriter into likewise selling his soul. The theatrical version, released on Halloween Day 1974 and carrying the tagline, He Sold His Soul for Rock and Roll, starred Laurel Canyon's own Paul Williams as Swan, the demonic producer who surrounds himself with nubile young women eager to do his bidding. Williams, who lived on Lookout Mountain alongside numerous other singer-songwriters, also scored the film. Hmm. It is, I'm sure, entirely coincidental that two guys who emerged from the same intelligence unit in the early 1960s would follow such curious career paths. One, Paul Rothschild uh, becoming what many on the scene in those days would have described as demonic rock music producer and the other yarn Rostang penning a novel about a demonic rock music producer. Uh, and that like, it goes into Isley Stanley, like right after that. But yeah, that's uh, a yeah. uh, sort of Paul Rothschild, uh, bit, um, that I like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just having to do with his intelligence backgrounds and like the perception of him as being like a demonic producer by this guy who, uh, was in the same uh, unit uh, as him in the Army Intelligence Corps. Um, exactly. Yeah, and that uh, movie
2: was directed by Brian De Palma, who uh, mm-hmm. who also made uh, you know interesting. I've, I've rewatched a lot of De Palma uh, over the over 2020 and uh, mm-hmm. found him. I had kind of renewed interest in him. Can't say for sure how suss he is, but he did in the late 70s make a movie I haven't watched yet, but might be something to talk about. Uh, down the line um i think it was called the fury and it's about ca oh, yeah. psychic spies
0: mm-hmm, right yes i think that uh yeah you mentioned this relative to the mm-hmm. podcast in the past uh i think that there might be some notes on it in, in our workflowy document uh brian de palma's the fury but yeah yeah uh, right yes
2: uh, exactly. Yeah. It's um, yeah. It's about like yeah, it, XCA agents, uh, or XE agent as a psychic son, and then there's like <laughs> there's false flag terrorist attacks. There's ESP telekinesis, um, and uh, yeah, I guess. Um, I wonder. It certainly makes me curious
0: to watch *Phantom of the Paradise* now. Um, Yes, uh, an extremely negative, uh, extremely (laughs) negative. We received box office failure, Um, Mm -hmm. but it received Academy Award and Golden Globe nominations for its music.
2: Um, Oh, interesting! mm, Interesting. Yeah. So he put, you know, he put the doors together, and um, and the doors definitely fall under the category. I think, like we mentioned a little bit earlier, that like they were not seasoned musicians and really hadn't been in like they hadn't been in any bands before they basically Mm -hmm. were assembled um and you know uh just a mcgowan summary i think is here uh pretty good um uh, he says you know morrison essentially arrived on the scene as a fully developed rock star, complete with a backing band, a stage persona, and an impressive collection of songs, enough, in fact, to fill the door's first few albums. How exactly he re- reinvented himself in such a radical manner remains something of a mystery, since before his sudden incarnation as singer-songwriter, James Douglas Morrison had never shown the slightest interest in music, none whatsoever. He certainly never studied music or and could neither read nor write it. By his own account, he had never much of an interest in even listening to music, He told one interviewer that he, quote, never went to concerts, one or two at most. And before joining the Doors, he never did any singing. I never even conceived of it. Asked near the end of his life if he ever had any desire to learn to play a musical instrument, Jim responded, not really. So here we had a guy who had never sang, who had never even conceived of the notion that he could open his mouth and make sounds come out, who couldn't play an instrument and had no interest in learning such a skill, and who had never much listened to music or been anywhere near a band, even just to watch one perform, and he somehow emerged, virtually overnight, as a fully formed rock star who would quickly become an icon of his generation." Even more bizarrely, legend holds that he brought with him enough original songs to fill the first few Doors albums. Morrison did not, you see, do as other singer-songwriters do and pen the songs over the course of the band's career. Instead, he allegedly wrote them all at once before the band was even formed. As Jim once acknowledged in an interview, he was, quote, "...not a very prolific songwriter. Most of the songs I've written I wrote in the very beginning, about three years ago. I just had a period when I wrote a lot of songs." In fact, all of the good songs that Morrison is credited with writing were written during that period, the period during which, according to rock legend, Jim spent most of his time hanging out on the rooftop of a Venice apartment building consuming copious amounts of LSD. This was just before he hooked up with fellow student Ray Manzarek to form The Doors. Legend also holds, strangely enough, that that chance meeting occurred on the beach, though it seems far more likely the pair would have actually met at UCLA, where both attended the university's rather small and close-knit film school. In any event, the question that naturally arises uh, is how exactly did Jim the Lizard King Morrison write that impressive batch of songs? I'm certainly no musician myself, but it is my understanding that just about every singer-songwriter across the land composes his or her songs in essentially the same manner, on an instrument, either a piano or guitar usually. Some songwriters I hear can compose on paper, but that requires a skill set that Jim did not possess. The problem, of course, is that he could also not play a musical instrument of any kind, how did he write the songs then? Um, and you know, he goes on to say, yeah, he probably, uh, you know, did them in his head. Uh, uh th- but that's difficult to do if you can't write music or you don't like know any, and, you know, like Brian Wilson was able to do, uh, <laughs> basically. Uh, but Brian Wilson was like a trained musician and, um, and he's saying, he's clarifying here cause I can already hear the haters, the, the, the Jim Morrison stands being like, he was a poet. Okay. But McGowan says these are, (laughs) should be clarified songs that we are talking about here, as opposed to just lyrics, which would more accurately be categorized as poems because Jim, as is fairly well known, was quite a, quite a prolific poet whereas he was a songwriter for only one brief period of his life. But why was that? Why did Morrison, with no previous interest in music, suddenly and inexplicably become a prolific songwriter, only to just as suddenly lose interest after mentally penning an impressive catalog of what would be regarded as rock staples? And how and why did Jim achieve the accompanying physical transformation that changed him from a clean-cut, collegiate, and rather conservative-looking young man into the brooding sex symbol who would take the country by storm? And why, after a few years of adopting that persona, did Jim Transform once again in the last year or so of his life into an overweight, heavily bearded, reclusive poet who seemed to have lost his interest in music just as suddenly and inexplicably as he had obtained it. Um, you know, um, uh, yeah, so that's all weird. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, he says. As Vanity Fair once noted, the Doors were always different from the other Laurel Canyon bands. All four members of the group, for example, lacked previous band experience. Morrison and Manzarek, as noted, were film students, and drummer John Densmore and guitarist Robbie Krieger were recruited by Manzarek from his Transcendental Meditation class, which is, I guess, where one goes to find musicians to fill out one's band. That class, however, apparently lacked a bass player, so they did without, except for those times when they used session musicians and then claimed that they did without. Anyway, the point is that none of the four members of the Doors had any real band credentials. Even a band as contrived as the Birds, as we shall soon see, had members with band credentials. So did Buffalo Springfield, with Neil Young and Bruce Palmer, for example, having played in the Mina Birds, backing a young vocalist who would reinvent himself as Rick Super Freak James, um which is I didn't know I didn't know Neil Young played in Rick James's backup band, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, but but basically, the Doors could cite no such band lineage. They were just four guys who happened to come together to play the songs written by the singer who had never sung, but who had a sudden calling and a magical gift for songwriting. And as you would expect yeah. with four guys who had never actually played in a band before, they didn't really play very well. And that's kind of an understatement. And uh, don't take you know his word for it. Let's let the band's producer Paul Rothschild, weigh in. Paul Rothschild said, quote, The doors were not grave live performers musically. They were exciting theatrically and kinetically, but as musicians they didn't make it. There was too much inconsistency. There was too much bad music. Robbie would be horrendously out of tune with Ray. John would be missing cues. There was bad mic usage too, where you couldn't hear Jim at all. And uh, Uh,
0: the second paragraph is good, too, where uh, McGowan says that he heard like some early Doors recording. And he was like, uh, it seems like not being able to hear Jim at Hall might have been in many cases actually an improvement to the performance. Uh Yeah. 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 Uh, And, you know, like I said, that they were just an abysmal live band. Um, Mm -hmm. And like so it seems like really like this was kind of being like cooked up. Uh, by people, like, in the Paul Rothschild orbit, like, with these weird, like, spooky backgrounds, uh, -hmm. to, like, churn out this weird band. Um, in fact, even the name The Doors, I think as we've noted before, uh, maybe not in this episode, but, uh, in, in past ones, that, it comes from The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. Um, Yep, sure uh, does.
2: Mm -hmm. uh yeah you know had had died a few years prior but was uh but you know lived in los angeles and worked at like the esalen institute and was like was i think it it, it is yeah it's pretty official now that he was involved with mk ultra particularly the psychedelic part of it and the culture kind of culture manipulation social engineering possibilities of it and Mm -hmm. So here comes, yeah, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, McGowan also points out that The Doors were probably the only band from Laurel Canyon that didn't change any of its members for its entire existence. Like, literally every other band, for the most part, even the Mamas and the Papas, like, kicked out Michelle Phillips for a while. Every other band, like, The Birds had a different lineup on literally every album. Like, Love went through, like, multiple incarnations um, and... Pretty much, you know, everybody at, like, you know, Steppenwolf, which was another one, um, Frank Zappas' band, obviously. Like, it was usually very... There was a high churn rate, and, you know, maybe that's also because they had the Wrecking Crew uh, actually laying down the music. And... Um, but not the Doors. They had the same four people that apparently couldn't play their instruments together very well uh, throughout their entire run. And, uh, like, McGowan says that, like... You know, Jim Morrison's band arrived on the scene as a fully formed entity with a name taken from Aldous Huxley, The Doors of Perception, a stable lineup, a backlog of soon-to-be-hit songs, and no previous experience writing, arranging, playing, or performing music. Other than that, though, they were just your run-of-the-mill, organic, (laughs) grassroots, 1960s rock and roll band, albeit one with a curious aversion to political advocacy. Jim Morrison was, by virtually all accounts, a voracious reader. Former teachers and college professors expressed amazement at the breadth and depth of his knowledge on various topics and at the staggering array of literary sources he could accurately cite, and yet he was known to tell reviewers that he, quote, hadn't studied politics that much, really, but that was okay, according to drummer John Densmore, since, quote, a lot of people at our concerts, at least, they're sort of—it seems like they don't really want to come to hear us speak politics, That's the way it was in the (laughs) 1960s. You see the young folks of that era just didn't concern themselves much with politics and certainly didn't want their anti-war icons engaging in anything resembling political discourse. Um, uh, You know, so I, uh, yeah, exactly. So here we go again (laughs) with like the, here we go again with like the grateful dead, like what at politics, man, like, nah, like much to much, much to the in sharp contrast to the perception of them in today's kind of culture. Like our cultural yeah. memory of them that they, you know, right. they got I mean, they basically got arrested because Jim Morrison whip his dick out during shows
0: mm-hmm.
2: like right. he didn't actually get arrested for uh, protesting against the war that his dad helped start. Yes. You know, uh, I mean, no. I mean, well, been, uh, again, yeah, yeah. And was a guy, I guess it's like, you know, he had such a wild, I would like to go back and watch the Oliver Stone movie, The Doors, which I haven't seen in so many years, but I want to yeah, like do a, su- a that. I want to do like a psy-op scan of it and see, cause <laughs> that was like in his peak, like JFK era where he was delving into like conspiracy type stuff. But I don't remember that movie really having any like susness about like, I, I mean, I feel like there are flashbacks to his childhood but I don't think the movie like outed that his dad was, you know, Admiral Morrison at the Gulf of Tonkin. You know, I feel like, you know, on the one hand, Oliver Stone would be the kind of person to like highlight that. But on the other hand, can we trust Oliver Stone, particularly mm. by the 90s? Yeah. I don't know. He's gone in some weird directions uh, in recent years. But uh, but yeah, Morrison. um there's just such a contradiction there with like how yeah. they get hyped up and like what they actually were and i guess i mean also it's like enshrined by using the end in apocalypse now uh mm-hmm. you know by yeah. francis for coppola which is also they were all in kind of this la world as well yeah and that
0: sort of like weird improvisational like jam thing that also i guess the band love had uh it seems like that was paul a paul rothschild thing who also came out of the cambridge scene that you mentioned with like the boston strangler and stuff you know oh yeah yeah adjacent folk scene Um, Well, i think uh, yeah yeah, there
2: there's a there's a weird connection there that intersects with another laurel canyon luminary uh graham parsons who uh Mm -hmm. was one that did not make it out alive uh And when he, uh, we'll we'll circle back to him in a longer point, but basically he got exposed, he went to Harvard. He was a uh, pretty wealthy kid from a Florida Citrus Dynasty family. They owned a lot of citrus, Mm -hmm. you know, groves and stuff. And he got sent off to Harvard, and he got into the Cambridge folk scene that had been popping off there in the early '60s, um, mainly at a place called Club 47, which opened in 1958, it's a jazz and blues venue. Um, the first folk artist to take the stake there, uh, to take the stage there, was a very young Joan Baez, whose reputedly CIA-connected father worked at MIT. Um, and then Dylan came there in 1961. I guess 1962 McGowan calls it the Cambridge equivalent of the Hates summer of love. Um, the, and that the Cambridge scene and others in Greenwich village and elsewhere were necessary precursors to the Laurel Canyon scene, which was essentially created by taking the music of that earlier scene, particularly the work of Dylan and Seeger and mixing it with the instrumentation being utilized across the pond by a band known as the Beatles. Uh, and (laughs) of course this is, uh, Vintage McGowan is entirely fitting then that, as with Laurel Canyon, the Cambridge scene came complete with its own resident psycho killer. In addition to the folk scene hitting its peak in the summer of 1962, something else newsworthy happened in Cambridge that summer. A lot of women started turning up dead, six of them in that first summer alone and seven more over the next couple of years. And as Susan Kelly noted in the Boston Stranglers, one of these victims was killed right across the street from Club 47. Uh, Just across the street from victim Beverly Salmon's apartment, a very young and not yet famous Joan Baez and an equally youthful and unknown Bob Dylan were playing to reverently hushed audiences at the Club uh, 47. And, uh, you know, I think... um, As the title of Kelly's book implies, there was actually no such person as the Boston Strangler, but that didn't stop authorities and the media from pinning all the murders on one Albert DeSalvo, far better known as the Boston Strangler. Just as Laurel Canyon would have Charles Manson as its unofficial mascot, the earlier scene in Cambridge had Albert DeSalvo. And Cambridge had something else that Laurel Canyon would later have, Paul Rothschild, who worked at Club 47 and went on to produce The Doors. Um, So, yeah, so Paul Rothschild was up in Club 47 in this like proto Laurel Canyon scene, uh, yes. I presume after leaving the military or cause he joined the military in 1959,
0: didn't he? Uh, I don't know if I don't recall like, uh, when, if it said when he joined the military, uh, at least I, I had to look, uh, in the book. Um, but, uh, man, he, well, he did prison time on a minor drug charge. So uh, that's a, a different passage, but anyway, uh, Yes, uh, I don't know if it says that. Well, it definitely says that he was in uh, the Army Intelligence Corps in nineteen fifty nine. But I don't know if it says when he was in or left the military. Uh, that yeah, I recall. Yeah, he, um, he may
2: if he did like a two year stint. He might he may have ended up in Cambridge right after. Mm, um, yeah, his military service. But you know that's well. Uh, I mean, it
0: also would make sense for him to. I mean. I guess we're assuming that, like, he truly indeed left, like, the Army Intelligence Corps, but, like, you know, uh, Cambridge is a natural place to be for, like, Army intelligence, I feel like. A lot of stuff's happening yeah. around, like, Harvard MIT,
2: and
0: MIT. exactly. Yeah, um, and,
2: and on top of that, British I mean, this game. was also... I, I didn't see McGowan get into it, but I would be interested to know if there was any connection between that folk beatnik scene at Club 47 and... And Harvard at the time, Harvard professors, Tim Leary and Richard Alpert doing their first mm-hmm. limited M- MK Ultra LSD, uh, you know, experiments like giving it out. Usually, I mean, it almost sounds like uh, the the vibe of the, the kind of beatnik club, like, you know, a, a room like in hushed, reverent, you know, tones like listening to it sounds a lot like tim leary's like early kind of dinner parties where he would give people lsd it was very like chill and Mm -hmm. kind of um had this uh reverence uh around it and it wasn't like a it wasn't quite a merry prankster like freak out party yet that would come later in california um Mm -hmm. but uh yeah, I think, so, I mean, because, yeah, because I think Leary was probably kicked out in either 62 or 63, and it says here that, like, the, the sort of summer of love in Cambridge was in 1962, so that would have been probably around the time he was distributing LSD to undergrads, and right before he got fired, which itself might have right. been, like, a, kind of an op to, like, give him this uh, renegade credibility and, you know, dissociate yeah, themselves from him. it's interesting
0: that uh, Paul Rothschilds uh, served prison time, like, on a minor drug charge, um, mm-hmm. like, uh, during, uh, yeah, like, uh, well, odd, um, during the production of, uh, what was the uh, album uh, that he worked on? I had to look up, because I came across that when I was trying to determine when uh, he left the military. I guess uh, it was uh, during the production of, of a love album. Um mm. Yeah, their self-titled debut. Uh, well, I guess that was when he was he was uh, in prison on, on drug charges. I wonder, yeah, what the nature exactly of that was. Um, but, uh, yeah, and their second album was, again, produced by, by Paul Rothschild. Um, yeah, uh, his parole officer, ever accommodating, had signed off on him venturing out to California. The cover art for the uh, new j- <laughs> is once again, like the first one, photographed at a fire ravaged home in Little Canyon, the sound of the record was much different than the first fusing jazz with psychedelic rock. Word. Hmm. Uh, yeah, what were you saying? Uh, yeah.
2: Interesting. That, so, hmm. I mean, yeah, it, so- it sounds a little bit like, um, why am I blanking on it right now? Um... Oh, yeah, Charles Manson, <laughs> getting a, yeah. having a very generous parole officer that's like, you can go down to L.A., that's fine.
0: Yeah, Rogan apparently also, like, you know, listened to, I don't know if he ever did anything with it, but he, he definitely listened to the family's music. Um, like, mm-hmm. uh, it was, you know, arranged to, to be played for him. Like, uh, as I guess it went around with all these people. They had a chance to sort of listen to it. Um, mm. You know, uh, yeah
2: interesting um oh and i see yeah paul rothschild was technically working for electra records which mcgowan mcgowan mentioned was one of the only new record labels founded in the 1950s that was like one of two i think along with maybe atlantic that basically like survived uh like the end of the there's a great kind of consolidation from like the 50s to the 70s and uh most like uh, there were like over a thousand record labels founded and like you know basically two or three i mean eh, same old story right nothing new under the sun um mm-hmm. railroads internet companies etc it always tends towards a monopoly um but i guess electra um was kind of maybe like the third player uh i guess they did a lot of folk and rock uh kind of early on i forget who they had um and I think maybe, oh, they have, see, they eventually merged with Asylum Records by our boy David Geffen, who kind of would be the beneficiary. Like, he would take all this to the next level in the 70s. But I- actually, McGowan doesn't get into David Geffen too much. I guess he, he even though David Geffen, who um, basically, you know, started out, uh, asylum records in the very early seventies, which grew out a company he had called lookout management, lookout mountain, uh, you know, yeah, like, yeah, uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and he signed, uh, a lot of people from this, this milieu. Um, I think he signed, uh, I think he had worked with, um, Crosby stills and Nash and other people like that. Um, And then got really big with, like, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, the Eagles. uh, The Eagles really were what, like, blew it up. But also, like, Tom Waits. Like, uh, uh, they had John Fogerty. They signed Bob Dylan away from Columbia Records. uh, And... uh, uh, but then he went back. Uh, Warren Zevon, who had like uh, was the son of like lieutenant to like Los Angeles mob kingpin uh, Mickey Cohen, uh, Emmylou Harris, like basically that L.A. country rock and like mm-hmm. uh, folk sound, like that is what made Geffen like the the big dog in Hollywood that he basically is today. And uh, but that that's that's a little bit out of the scope of um of McGowan's book. So like. Um, he I suppose was a very young person working his way up from like the mailroom of wherever at this time, uh, Geffen was. But, um, yeah. I mean, is there anything else? Uh, let's see. I don't know to say. Hmm. About the eh, the doors. I mean, like it's just bizarre. It's us. Um. Yeah. <laughs> the, it's definitely the fact is that his dad. Sus.
0: It's amazing his that Dad was the commander and like yeah uh, that was the commander of, of what uh, of, of, of the of
2: the yeah the destroyer course. ship that yeah. was like he was yeah. there like he was literally the captain of that ship who you know relayed the fake information that they were attacked that gave LBJ the excuse to send like 500,000 troops there in retaliation mm. so he's like quite literally was like Right there, uh, like he did the Vietnam War, in in a way. I mean, yeah. obviously, force is much larger than him, but that th- that always like kind of blows my mind. Of like, y- you don't have any feelings about this. Like, you are you not aware of this very interesting historical situation, like with you and your father? It, it makes you think that like there's there had to be something else operating going on that made him want to just avoid ever talking about that and like totally deflect it. And it's kind of amazing that he was able to for, I don't think any that came out during his lifetime.
0: Yeah. Well, in a way it wasn't really that much of a contradiction because like, it wasn't like he was a super outspoken opponent of the Vietnam war. Really? Uh, um, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, I guess like he's known as being like crazy and like by, I guess by association. Yeah. Maybe you're talking about, uh, how the m was an apocalypse now so maybe that's an association and like people think of like if you have long hair and you're in a rock band then like you know you're part of the 60s counterculture which is anti-vietnam you know or which like you know against uh normies or, or whatever against yeah. squares. but um well it goes it goes yeah. back I mean, to really, that idea like, what needs to be yeah is the, is the square the hip square uh binary. Uh, yes. we need to deconstruct yes. it, uh, because, uh, a lot of these hips are actually squares or are like, uh, you know, carefully coordinated products of squareness or metamorphosed squares doing insight rolls. Um, yes, exactly. I don't know if the plural of someone whose hip is, I guess a hippie, uh, you know, I'm calling them hips, but you know, I feel well, like. Oh yeah, whatever. hippie, hippie, uh, hipster. Hip, I hip. think it all
2: comes out of the, it comes out of the same, uh like etymology. Um, but yeah, certainly the hippie idea. And even, I think it goes to like one of these, like widely held beliefs that like the hippies ended the Vietnam war. And I think when we dig more into this, it's like, um, I don't know, like a lot of these hippies weren't even opposed to it. These most famous ones that usually get kind of all the credit and sure. They kind of like took over the aesthetic of the anti-war movement, but to what extent was the hippie part of it critical to stopping the Vietnam War? And I mean, I, I almost tend to reject like in some like th- this whole I don't know, the paradigm of like the protesters were the ones that were like that that stopped it when it kind of like, um I don't know, it kind of erases like the North Vietnamese and. The Viet Cong yeah. in the South, and also uh, also things like the collapse of discipline within the U.S. Army and draft
0: yes, drafty soldiers like fragging their
2: lieutenants and shit like that. Yeah,
0: I definitely do not think that it was the protesters that like are uh, primarily responsible for the end of the Vietnam War. Like, maybe I do think that possibly a perception of the war's unpopularity on, on the home front like contributed. But, like, you know, uh, there's many, many factors. And certainly it didn't bring it to, like, you know, uh, a screeching halt or anything. Like, it, it, it raged on uh, through all these protests. Like, uh, you know, there, wasn't, there didn't really seem to be any real, like, stable connection between the intensity of the protests. And, you know, the, uh, like Nixon seemed uh, content to just, like, pay, like, you know plow forward <laughs> with that regardless of, of the protests. I don't think
2: that that, like... Well, that's the... I mean, that that's the thing yeah. is, like, I think particularly from, like, 1968 onward, you see this, like, explosion of violence that is sort of mm-hmm. uh, both associated directly with the protests, like the Kent State Massacre, and uh, there's also... There's a similar one in Berkeley, which I, I stumbled across the other day, where, like, several people were killed by... I think, National Guard troops that, you know, so there are several incidents kind of like this. And then, of course, like, you know, all the COINTELPRO chaos, you know, targeted assassinations and shit of like Black Panthers that were going on and really kind of, um, you know, they were able to stretch the war out for uh, a number of more years. And the anti-war left kind of like went into a very uh beat down and kind of scattered place like in the 70s like the organizational politics and like even the protest politics all kind of like started to splinter apart people got really into drugs people got more into like Mm -hmm. lifestyle stuff like spiritual things um and you know So, I mean, the idea that, like, the protesters were the ones that, like, did it, like, they were almost, like, neutralized by the early 70s. And, sure, there were still protest against the war i don't know it's like it's interesting to look at in context of like our lifetimes and like what we've gone through with like protesting wars like iraq Mm -hmm. for example where those were the biggest protests in the history of the world against like a military intervention and they were like okay well that's nice we're still gonna go do it and like half the democrats were for it you know (laughs) yeah
0: like uh you know i mean yeah like uh certainly like these massive protests against iraq i mean didn't have like, a significant effect. I mean, I still think that we could have done more, like, uh, but I'm sure that they could have done more in the 60s as well, Uh, but, yeah. um, But I I, I wouldn't,
2: uh, yeah, I I wouldn't put these celebrities certainly at the vanguard of fighting against any of that.
0: Yeah, anyone who, yeah, definitely not. Well, especially not ones like Jim Morrison who don't say anything about it or ones like Frank Zappa, who are in favor of
2: it. Yes, yes. And all uh, but, these guys so are, like, like obsessed what, with know. guns. Like, they all... And, and I'm not saying, like, like owning guns or liking guns is bad, but, like, given the vibes they're putting off, it's a little strange that they all were, like, gun freaks who, would like, walk around, like, with pistols and... And, like, before Manson, they didn't really have any reason to be... Like, it was very, you know, more or less safe up in the canyon, but I guess, like, David Crosby had, like, a huge fascination with guns. Uh, Dennis Hopper was obsessed with guns, uh, I think maybe Terry, uh, I don't know about Terry Melcher, but, uh, and Frank Zappa as well, you know, they, they all kind of, like, fetishized it and had these kind of control freak personalities, but as long as they dressed up like wild men and grew a big bushy mustache, then they could just, I don't know, like, they could be perceived as something totally different it's very strange in retrospect, like how open they are about their politics or their refusal yeah. to like take a stand on political issues and how they still get worshiped anyways for like doing mm-hmm. something.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's that it's, it's very odd. Um, and yeah, it definitely does raise a lot of questions, uh, uh around, uh, the, the whole thing. Um, it, yeah, I, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've always, like, uh, you know, my dad, like, loves Jim Morrison, uh, and would always, like, put him on and be like, listen to this maniac, and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, like, he yells a lot, so I guess in a way, like, he's a maniac, uh, and I feel like, you know, that maybe isn't accurate characterization like that in some in some respects he's a a maniac but he's uh, the pure libidinal
2: like like, like young man like uh the military age male like uh uh kind of um almost like a kenneth anger ish kind of uh idealized male erotic form that's like thrusting his leather pants in your face like i said earlier with like the 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 same energy as like a napalm raid uh from like an you know an f-105 uh, in the jungles of North in the operation rolling thunder is it's like, this guy is just like, 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 you know, bursting out with this kind of a overwhelming, like sexual libidinal, like, but also kind of death focused. Like there's a, there's like a funeral dirge. There's a funereal and spooky, almost like church of Satan, uh, kind of vibe to like the org, the church organ, you know, that is prominently in all their songs like there's a spooky like we're going to hell in a bucket kind of vibe
0: yes uh there definitely is like and i think that that's even in the in the name like the the reference the doors of perception uh there's definitely a very spooky vibe in the doors and i i think i feel like there's a dialectical aspect to it where you know maybe it is just something that's purely optical in a way like the sort of fascination with them is not really something that's sort of political or about like you know, uh, some sort of uh, even pretense of opposition to like U.S. Uh, imperialism or, or uh, the Vietnam mm-hmm. War or something like that. It's about like a you know a different sort of appearance or a different kind of uh, bearing or orientation towards the same stuff, basically. Like you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's like a different like a, the same kind of warfare in a way, but like a different yeah. modality of warfare, like aesthetically. Like, you know, rather than, I mean, you could even say, like, Apocalypse Now is an interesting way to, like, understand this, you know, like, you have, like, Colonel Kurtz, uh, who's, like, you know, he's, like, lost his mind, you know, he's, in a way, like, God-native, uh, Mm -hmm. and then you, like, you know, as opposed to, like, someone who's, like, a square, you know, like, your typical, like, you know, the soldier of, like, the 50s, you know, like, uh... You like maybe mm-hmm. Apocalypse now versus uh, you know, John Wayne's *The Green Berets* or something. You know, like uh, yeah. there's a soldier in Vietnam who's like, you know, losing his mind and like, you know, just like shooting everybody, like you know, versus uh-huh. someone who's more straight-laced, but it's still like the same and being pursued in a way. And I think that maybe there's yeah interest in that kind of different type of like masculinity or whatever, like uh, in cultivating that different type of orientation towards the world or you know, masculinity yeah. is yeah like uh well you know, yeah i, I uh, was
2: just i was just thinking about how in the 1980s i would say progressively throughout the trilogy that stallone's rambo acquires a more increasing uh, resemblance to jim morrison mm-hmm, like yeah, down true. to like the feathered hair the bare mm-hmm. shirt the like the chiseled jawline and the brooding uh kind of like dissociated kind of personality
0: yeah
2: <laughs> Right, and yeah, like, and Rambo,
0: even in First Blood, you know, I think that there is a certain uh, similarity to Jim Morrison, and he's not, you know, but he still is fundamentally, yeah, he's fighting against, uh, you know, co- uh, the, cops really like, yeah, the cops who are vagrancy and shit, you know. yeah,
2: yeah, 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 no, yeah, true. And,
0: and yeah, and that that's that's yeah, that's true, but how like he still is, and I think that it says something how seamless the transition is from the Rambo of first blood to, I mean, we're just talking about still again, but I think it is interesting how seamless the transition is from the Rambo of first blood to the Rambo of like, do we get to win this time? Like, you know, Rambo, exactly uh, two, where it's like, okay, like this guy who was at one time, like this figurehead or like the sort of conduit of sort of a critique of the war now mm-hmm. is like, just going to go like, just pile up bodies, you yep. know, like, uh, exactly. even though, exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, like, and, uh, and I mean, it's but, not but then really if he, something that you even question, it's like that's what he really wants to do is get back in charge of the helicopters, you know, like everyone like, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like,
2: uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. He probably still couldn't yeah. get a job parking cars, but uh, but but then if you extend that transformation even further back from like the the link between the figure of Jim Morrison and then First Blood Rambo and then like Rambo Three Rambo, it even that has, like, a weird, like, full circle, uh, not, not, not to get too, you know, thick into uh, Jim Morrison being, like, similar to Sylvester Stallone in general, but just, like, that <laughs> image of, like, the young, like, shirtless, like, leather pants, like, feather-haired, uh, you know, son of a Navy admiral who's, like, would have been somebody who would, like, you know, uh, gone to Vietnam or something, but and became an acid freak uh, singer instead yeah and then uh ending up like a vagrant like tossed out and then brought back into the military like in the 80s to uh exact revenge and like you know kick the uh, relight that cold war flame and uh yeah. do, do war but crimes I think, um
0: yeah but i think that like when you think of it you know in terms of like the connection between you know the sort of subtle like cultural uh you know the, the subtle cultural use of sort of soft power and the, the sort of dimension of the uh, the iconography of masculinity or, or whatever. It's, it's interesting to contemplate because, in a way, if you think of, like, yeah, Rambo as, like, a soldierized or, uh, you know, or you know, Jim Morrison as, like, a culturalized, like, soldier or an idea of... Because, you know, uh, m- wars are mostly fought by males, no offense, uh, you know... Uh, like uh, so uh they Captain like Marvels still they're still they're, there they're, uh yeah, sorry, sorry, uh based I I guess yeah, just uh drone me like I'm um, just uh, having the, the opinion <laughs> of the evil Palestinians, like know yeah, well, maybe mm. in Gaza, but not in, yeah. yeah. Um <laughs> but uh we have sexy ladies who are here to bulldoze your house. But uh anyway, um <laughs> no like uh but still it's like, you know, perceived as uh especially, you know, I think at the at the time even more so, um you know, but i think that you know sorry i'm like on a tan like you know i'm uh, no, uh, kind okay. of a tangent. but i think that what you say about captain marvel is interesting uh relative to rambo because captain marvel is in a way uh creating like a different sort of paradigm where like there's even more sort of uh 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 porosity in terms of like the participation of between uh, women you know like it's bringing women into this complex as well it's uh you know a, a transformation of the sort of cultural idea of the soldier from one that is mm-hmm. connected to masculinity to one that has like you know maybe a less civic tie to a certain type of uh to a certain gender but or gender you know presentation yeah. or performance or whatever but uh you know it still think that does, doesn't because, it still feel you know?
2: a little bit like a yeah. new masculinity like captain marvel yeah. in a way rather well, yeah, than a sure. feminization it, like,
0: it's a new it's a new soldierinity which for yeah. most of history has been like you know for it, most american history has been tied to masculinity and i think that you know is like uh, the, the point that i'm kind of circling around is like You know, in the same way that, like, in the Revolutionary War or whatever, the sort of style of, like, you know, everyone is going to, like, line up and then we're just going to march with our guns, like, three paces and then fire or whatever. Like, that's probably not what they actually did, but you know what I'm saying. Like, they had these sort of, you know, very systematized, like, rules of engagement or whatever uh, Mm -hmm. that sometimes were bamboozled. And in the same way, this, you know, could be seen in the contrast between the engagements the United States had been in with the ones that it was in, you know, during the Cold War, since the Vietnam War. You know, is your traditional sort of square soldier as well-equipped to engage in a conflict like the Vietnam War as, you know, a more, like, crazy, like, you know, loose cannon guy to have, like, a sort of, who has a kind of a guerrilla mentality to, you know, have these more, uh, mm-hmm. these different kind of modes of engagement in the same way that for the battlefield of today, you know, you want, like, your Captain Marvel who is, like... You know, together, like strong, like indefatigable boss bitch who's like, you know, winning on the battlefield and like in the you know on the home front like or what i don't know like mm-hmm. uh, i haven't seen the movie so i'm just talking clued my but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know i feel like well, you know the idea of like the lean in like soldier who can like dr- you know drone you while she's like sipping her latte or whatever <laughs> uh, is like you know I, uh, I think that's
2: real because that's going to be the future of warfare and i think that yeah. you know it, as warfare becomes re- more remote and automated and things of that nature uh, uh, it, it probably makes a lot of sense to want to uh, to bring you don't want to limit yourself to like half. Of the population of people that could be involved in that when yeah the 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 the, the remaining kind of all male positions uh, are probably more in like special forces and infantry and those people are you know they're they're a chunk of the entire military force but i think there's going to be things like you know drone squadrons and information warfare yeah. things like that that are going to be honestly, you know
0: yeah women might be you know in the same way well uh you know, we're just not to speak for ourselves, but to uh, speak for prevailing opinions, especially among, you know, decision makers and and military complexes. I think, you know, uh, in the same way that it's perceived that men have greater upper body strength or like the ability to sort of like carry weaponry or operate heavy Mm -hmm. machinery, you know, there might be a perception that women uh, uh, certainly like, you know, in, in terms of gender stereotypes, there's certainly a perception that women are better at uh, organizing things, entering data, you know, like recording, monitoring things like, uh, you know, the same mm-hmm. intensity that's valuable in a Rambo, like the, you know, in terms of gender stereotypes, like, you know, a, like, a. There's a secretarial aspect to being a drone soldier, you know. No, there is,
2: to being, like, the mission intelligence coordinator. You're kind of sitting there with a bunch of, like, you know, uh, flat screen monitors, like, you know, uh, chatting with the NSA person, getting a live translation of somebody's phone call that you're hovering over and all kinds of things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it has a lot of those kind of—
0: you know, like Donna, like, you know, kill that Arab, like, you know, like, or whatever, like, uh, yeah. Also
2: maybe, increased fine motor sensitivity, which I think was, uh, was, I, I remember reading about Lyudmila Pavlichenko, the Soviet sniper, uh, who, who scored the world record of Nazi of dead Nazis, uh, I think 309 in world war two. Um, I think she said that, you know, women are better snipers because they have better fine motor sensitivity, you know?
0: yeah your finger and stuff
2: so like you know, <laughs> you know uh, not to be, uh you yeah, know not to so be gender
0: essentialist of course not you know uh
2: there's no ladies uh, sign, go down to your local recruiter office and uh sign and, up to uh, be you could be the next yeah. uh chris kyle uh christina kyle uh, wow you yeah
0: know. wow <laughs> yeah well i'm sure we'll always be seeing it. that on the screen on the silver screen yeah
2: we Whether definitely not, will, yeah. but, uh, but also, uh, I, just something random I wanted to build up that jumped out of me yesterday. We were reading about, like, the persona of these guys, and uh, I guess there's an MGM Records exec, David Andrel, um, who McGowan says, uh, perhaps summed up Zappa best, quote, I always felt there was something a little totalitarian about Frank. I was awed by the clarity of the vision and his ability to make it happen, but it was without warmth. And that just, like, triggered something in me. I was thinking about, like, Frank Zappa's bushy mustache and just kind of, like, how he looks. And then the fact that he was, like, this right-wing control freak and was, like, super anti-communist. But I almost peep something like, okay, I think I wrote in the notes a subliminal Stalin hypothesis. Maybe it's just the way this guy is describing uh, him. But he said there's something a little totalitarian. I was awed by the clarity of the vi- Just imagine somebody saying that about Stalin real quick. There's something a little yeah, totalitarian mm-hmm. about Joseph. Right, yes, I, was, okay. I was awed by the clarity of the vision and his ability to make it happen. But it was without warmth. Now, I mean, you could dispute whether Stalin was truly without warmth. But I would say the popular Western perception of him... That sounds exactly like what a Westerner would, like, say about Stalin. Like, oh, you got to hand it to him. Like, he had a vision and ability to make it happen, but there was no warmth and he was a totalitarian. It also made me think about just the weird, maybe this is completely a coincidence, but, like, the fact that the the band that kicked this off, the lead singer's name was Lennon. Mm,
1: okay.
2: Isn't it just a yeah. little weird? Yeah. Like, John, instead mm. of don't don't stand... Vladimir Lenin kids, Stan, John Lennon, look at this cute guy uh, playing his yeah. guitar and singing. And then right, Zappa, yeah. it's like, oh, he might be a tyrant, but it, it's almost like, okay, it's like in politics, like the type of behavior exhibited by a Frank Zappa would be considered um like psychotic, totalitarian and like evil, but like because he's a quote artist, it's like cool and like that's just how he is, man. Like he He's got this clarity of vision. It's like you're allowed to be like a little tiny cult leader dictator in this milieu, like whether you're Vito Pelikas or Charles Manson or Frank Zappa. And like it seems like all these people do have like these kind of like petty dictator complexes, Um, but they're all rather right wing. I mean, they're not like a. They're not, like, Maoists who are, like, experimenting with, like, you know, left-wing communes out in the desert. Like, these are all pretty, like, uh, right-wing, like, pro-capitalist, like, kind of people. And I don't know. I just wonder if there's kind of, like, something like like Frank Zappa as a kind of, like, clownish parody of, like, Stalin or something. But also, Mm -hmm. like, just how we always talk about, like, how the CIA was, like, studying... Uh, say Maoism or certain things and then it wants to kind of like rip those things off but use it towards its own ends or sometimes like the Manchurian candidate hypothesis where it's like oh like the Soviets are doing this mind control assassin thing so like we got to go do a mind control assassin thing. it's like we build the projected idea of whatever it is we think they're doing which is way more sinister probably than it actually was or Mm -hmm. uh or like a projection of our our fear and then we go build like a scary straw man of it for ourselves that because we think like that's how uh that's how like the 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 communists must be dosing everybody with drugs and like hypnotizing them and like electroshocking them so like we got to go do that and it turns out like that's probably not what they were doing but now we're doing it and then it's effective towards our own ends and um I don't know. Uh, I'm out on a limb here, but there's just like, <laughs> like I mean, to think about these guys replacing what otherwise might have been a at least a certain like greater sympathy with like left wing uh, movements around the world, and you know whether it's Cuba or uh, in China or the Soviets or whatever. Um, like it's like all these Laurel Canyon people managed like a pull off like a magic trick whereby they received the energy of being like the radical vanguard like leaders like the mm-hmm. young turks you know but in fact yeah. they kind of like weren't really leading anything and
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know i mean yeah where did yeah, they know for
0: sure it's interesting yeah you know uh it's almost like kind of like a uh yeah, it's it's like cause there's yeah there's a certain romance like a romance to revolutionaries, you know, uh, in literature, like in just in culture in general. But uh, there's nothing actually revolutionary except like on a very superficial level, um, and a lot of it is actually like very much directed like as kind of an experiment almost.